Stairwells, a movie podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm George as always by Neve. Hi, I'm Neve. And uh, we watched a whole bunch of movies. Um, But before we get to a whole bunch of movies, we watched a whole bunch of movies. Yeah. <laughs> a less whole bunch than last time. 
Uh, Nia, what have you watched in, uh, since our last recording? Um, multiple movies, but I'm going to start with The Virgin Suicide. Yeah. Which actually I had started. Yes. Like, before we recorded last yes. time. But I was, like, not even halfway through, I think, when we left off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I finished that up. Um, it's been a little while, so I don't fully... It's not as fresh in my mind as, like, honestly, it was when we recorded last time, but I had seen all of it. Yeah. Um, it was pretty good, though. It seemed all right. Yeah. I liked it. Are you... Do you like Sofia Coppola generally? I haven't seen any of her movies, I haven't seen... The first movie that I saw from her was... I don't think I saw this when I was a kid. I don't... There are parts of these, there's parts of this where I was like, I think I know this, but I think I just know it through cultural osmosis. Uh-huh. So there's other stuff where I'm like, I don't think I've seen this. Um, but anyway, I think the first movie that I saw from her is Lost in Translation, which is a little bit of a racist movie. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, I also want to, like, revisit it. Um, I, don't I mind me, I'm being, just Googling Sofia Coppola. Yeah, I remember it being, um, enjoyable. Um... But, uh, you know, maybe not a big surprise given the title of this movie. Um, so I think it's based off of a, a book. But uh features a lot of suicides in it. Yeah. Um, you know, that's like one of the main focuses of it. It, it was kind of weird because... I don't know. I'm saying this having only watched two of her movies, so I don't want to, like, boss baby this. <laughs> but... Both of her movies seem to be movies that are, like, talking about things that are hard, like, the difficulty of, like, communicating with other people and, like, understanding what other people are going through. And yet, some of the stuff that gets used feels like, like, so a big thing at the end of this, it's basically told through the perspective of these, like, teenage boys who are, um, I would say infatuated Mm -hmm. with these five sisters that range from like, I think it's like 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all like, they're the, the daughters of this like Catholic couple. Um, I was saying to you earlier that I didn't quite understand their house because it's like, like they must just be like, have wealth mm-hmm. from the family because uh, he teaches at an, a public school and she's a stay at home mom. Mm. Um, and my mom taught at a public school and my dad was a pastor. And the reason why that we had a house is because you get a parsonage when you're a pastor. Mm-hmm. Otherwise we not, we would not have had a house. Right. Cause you don't make a lot of money as either a pastor or a public school teacher. Yeah. Even in the nineties when I was a kid. <laughs> um, so they must just have family wealth. Or it's the 90s and people making movies don't think about these sorts of things the way that people think about them now, I feel like. Yeah. I feel like that's possible of just like... What it felt like is that someone was telling a story about like growing up, like their experiences of like affluent white like suburbia Mm -hmm. and their experience was their dad went and worked at like a, you know big company or something mm-hmm. and their mom was a stay-at-home mom yeah and so they're doing that but then for the convenience of the plot they need the dad to work at the school right 
because they need to like have scenes where like the boys ask the dad like at school if they can like you know go to homecoming prom with his daughters or whatever um like this is a a key plot point um and so they're just like well i guess he works at a school and they don't think about how like their dad who worked at a company like was probably making a lot more money Mm. than a teacher yeah they just transpose like their experience onto well he's just a teacher yeah and without like any thought of yeah anyway so yeah that was the the one weird like i was watching this and you know i guess like spoilers for the virgin suicides but all five girls kill themselves no um the first one at the very beginning like the youngest one at the very beginning of the movie and then Mm -hmm. all the other ones at the end um and so the whole thing is like the boys trying to and like failing to understand why they killed themselves. Mm-hmm. But so much in the movie is about like the extreme like control that their parents are exerting over their lives. Um, where like you know the um, Kirsten Dunn's character when they go to the homecoming dance, uh, all the other ones go home, but she was like the one that really wanted to go. And then, you know, she's, like, smoking and drinking and then uh, has sex with the boy in the the field. I'm just, like, fully spoiling, you know, virgin suicides. But, and then, like, comes home the next day, you know, like, ashamed. And then the family just, like, super cracks down and they can't go to school anymore. They, like, can't leave the house. And then they kill themselves. And it's, like, I think I kind of understand why kids would kill themselves if they have like extremely controlling parents like that. Like, and it's, this is the thing too of like lost in translation is trying to be a movie. That's about like the difficulty of human beings to like understand and connect with each other. Mm. But this is the part where it gets kind of racist. It's using like, Oh, I can't understand Japanese. It's such an incomprehensible language. Right. It's like, that's just a language that other people speak to talk to each other. It is like notably different than English. Like even just the way that it is grammatically structured is like vastly different compared to something like, you know, Spanish or German or like romance languages have a similar structure to them. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, there's just these moments where like what they're reaching for, for like the difficult, like the impossibility of, of connection is just like, there are people who speak Japanese and English. Like, yeah. (laughs) Um, I, it's not that hard to understand why these girls would like be suicidal. I watched 10 or 15 minutes of this movie last week while you were watching it. Um, Not like the first 15 minutes, not like the last 15 minutes, just a 10, 15 minute chunk right in the middle somewhere. And I kind of... Last week, I didn't want to say this. I was like, I feel like I kind of got the whole thing of the movie just from 10 minutes of it. Yeah. Um, And I didn't want to say that because it felt rude. But now that you've said it, now that you've described the whole thing to me, I'm like, I feel like I kind of got all of it from 10 (coughs) minutes of it. And I feel like I kind of got all of it just from knowing, oh, it's about these girls who commit suicide. Yeah. Like, Um, I kind of feel like I knew all that before I watched the movie. Yeah. And so this is the thing. I was kind of watching it and I was like being a like adult who as a child struggled with like suicidal ideation and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and also like in a family that was fairly poor, mm-hmm. I was just watching it being like, Oh, this is just like the, the rich kids in the like 
suburban town I'm living in because I first grew up in like a very poor rural town mm-hmm. and then we moved to like a more suburban town it still had like farms around and but it was like more of a mix and there like there were kids with legit mansions yeah in school along with kids who like worked on a farm you know they mm-hmm. would go home and like help their parents on the farm um and it's just like extremely the perspective of like the rich kids without like any awareness of like other stuff that's going on yeah and that's not to say that like depression and like controlling parents and stuff don't also affect you if you have wealth yeah but it was just like it it was like so focused on that but in ways that like ignored so much else in a way that again i i really enjoyed this movie but yeah it just like didn't fully there were just moments that didn't fully connect with me yeah um and and some of it was like just how like wealth like white suburban wealth this movie was just felt like jarring to me especially as there were moments that felt like my life but like in like weird displaced ways from what i saw of it the other thing that made me think of was like i i joked last week um it's 1999 and history has ended um and um the there's like a way I wonder if that movie just assumes that like affluence and whiteness are default and like, yeah. you know, this is the house they have because a nice house like this is the default in a way that is like unthought of. Like that's yeah. just what normal is. And like, you don't have to interrogate that at all. And if you have someone interrogate it, even the tiniest bit, you're like, well, how the fuck does a public school teacher afford that house? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and, like, I think that Sofia Coppola is a good director. Mm-hmm. She is also the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola, mm-hmm. a, like, super beloved director who mm-hmm. made a lot of money. Yes. Um, and, like, Lost in Translation is, like, specifically pulling from her experiences of going with her dad to Japan and her dad recording the Centauri whiskey commercials with a Kurosawa Akira. Mm-hmm. Like, this was, like, her life. This is what she's pulling from. And it is just a... There is, like, a an affluence and a wealth to, like, both yeah. movies that I've seen from her in a way where I'm, like, this is... This one just, like, felt more jarring to me mm-hmm. because it's set in Michigan where I grew up. Um, and, like, a lot of the images that I'm seeing feel like areas that I was growing up, but it's also, like, oh, yeah, when I go over to, like my friend's house and he just lives in a mansion. Uh-huh. Um, and then it's like also crying about how he's gay. And I'm there like, this is really hard. Also, I'm queer and mm-hmm. like, don't have money. Yeah. <laughs> Itu- you know, Itumama Tamien is also kind of about these things, but Itumama Tamien is actually about these things yeah. in a way that this movie does not seem like it, it is, is. Yeah, Itumama Tamien is aware of it. Like, yeah, all all of this like class stuff in a way that this movie isn't. I was um while we were talking, I was googling Sofia Coppola. I pulled up her Wikipedia page just to make sure that I hadn't seen any of her movies because I I thought maybe there was a chance. I I haven't seen any of her movies. I did just uh take a moment to appreciate her film debut was in um The Godfather, nineteen seventy two, as an infant, and like <laughs> The Godfather, uh, <laughs> people don't remember. Uh, was in its day the like biggest success of a movie ever, like until Jaws 
like dethroned it three years later. I think until Godfather Part Two dethroned it two years later, and then Jaws dethroned that. Like she was just. I don't know that Francis Ford Coppola was born into money. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't know anything about him. But, like, certainly by the time Sophia was an infant, he was rolling in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, also, I'm just looking at, like, you know, later we're going to talk about a bunch of short films made by a um, Ghanaian-American woman. Mm-hmm. Um. Of, like, all the movies listed here, the only one where she was not a producer was The Virgin Suicides. Mm-hmm. And it's because her dad was the co-producer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I don't like, again, I enjoy that there are, like, that she's making movies. I think the two movies that I've seen are well made. There are just also these things where, but this is, like, so much of movies. Yeah. yeah. Like, um, even Nicolas Cage is like a Coppola. Yeah. Yeah. He like effaces it, but, <laughs> um. This is just what the industry is. Yeah. Most people that make movies that you would see in a theater, if you look into it, you're like, oh yeah, there's some famous person's kid. Yeah. Or. Or like, there's some have, wealthy person's yeah, kid. Yeah. Or just independently wealthy. Yeah. Um. Um. Where the sidewalk counts? Yeah. Not the oh. Shel Silver scene. Oh, um, yes. I earlier had a slightly higher rating for the quality of stairwells because I was like the stairs in this movie are used. They're fairly ornate for a suburban home, and it is sort of like the center of the home in many ways. And there's like a a, a big important scene where like um, after everything goes down, Kirsten Dunst's character has to like drag her records down because. This is, like, weirdly set in the 70s, but also a movie that was made in 1999, a time when people were, like, idealizing the 70s, where for a little bit, I f- just thought that this was the 90s. Because mm-hmm. also, like, they're not, like, super doing period hair, so, like, they kind of have 90s hair. Um, and then there was just this moment where I was like, wait, everyone's listening to vinyl records. This is not, this is not the 90s. This this is not even like, I thought it was like slightly earlier in the 90s, but no, it's supposed to be in like the 70s. But anyway, she has to drag her vinyl records down and her mom is like making them burn them because they're like wicked rock and roll music. And she was tempted to have sex with a boy. Um, And they burn one and it like creates such noxious smoke that they like can't breathe. And she's like, I'm just going to throw the rest of these away. (laughs) But she has to like sadly like drag them down the stairs. Like, you know, like a big Mm -hmm. like milk crate full of them. (coughs) Um, I think that's one of the big. And then there's also at the very end. um, So after all the daughters die, the like uh, mom and dad just like leave the town and go to another town. Because, you know, Uh people will talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just all these shots of the, the like empty home mm-hmm. and there are multiple of the stairs. So I give it a higher one, but then as I was thinking about it more, I was like, it is still suburban home stairs. Yeah. These are probably the most ornate and like well-used suburban home stairs I've ever seen in a movie. So it's an A minus, but like, I just don't think suburban home stairs can get above an A minus. <laughs> <laughs> You like really gotta, you gotta. Like, a murder has to happen on those stairs. Yeah, or they have to be suburban home stairs. But like the ones that I grew up with, that are like a poor home, 
And then, like, you get that, like, loving attention that, like, Simon Long would give to, like, poor lived-in spaces. Uh-huh. I could also see that selling me on it, yeah. but I'm just not going to rate rich white people stairs. <laughs> <laughs> um, where the sidewalk ends. Where the sidewalk ends. Shel Silverstein. Not Shel Silverstein. Children's Poetry. Um, okay, so I watched this movie because it was leaving Criterion, um... And um, we decided we were going to cover Laura at some point, and so I didn't want to watch Laura, but I was in the mood for a noir movie. I've just been kind of vaguely on a noir kick recently yeah. um, between, like, Batman and, and a couple of movies I've been watching. Um, you know, it's not like... It's not like... Oh, whatever. Anyway, uh, so I didn't want to watch Laura... But uh, this movie was also there. It uh, also stars Gene Tierney and uh, Dana Andrews, who were in Laura. So yeah. I was like, um, that sounds kind of interesting. Yeah. I'll give it a shot. And then I mean, I, these are both Otto Preminger. Yes. Yes. Um, I told, I, my train of thought tonight is just fucked. Anyway. Yeah. We did watch 13 films, so... No, I think I I got a weird phone call right That's before strange. we started. I think I'm probably just thrown off because of that. Um, anyway, uh, Where the Sidewalk Ends is a phenomenal movie. Uh, made me very excited that we're going to circle back to Laura at some point. Um, we we're going to circle back to Laura because that very like directly ties into like David Lynch's work in Twin Peaks in a way that I think will be interesting. But even I would not have made this connection if I did not know that. But knowing that, I can see how this movie also like there's there's threads here. Um, the the basic plot premise is that um, this cop played by Dana Andrews, who I think does a really good job in this movie. Um, he's very like classic mid century like your your Humphrey Bogart type of like stoic and cynic, you know. Um, but I think he does really good. I think if you can't get Humphrey Bogart, I think Dana Dana Andrews is a pretty good like substitute. Um, so Dana Andrews is a detective um, who's been getting like uh, rung up by his bosses multiple times because he keeps beating up um, like suspects and um, like his bosses are like, if you keep beating up just random suspects, we're going to like demote you. And he's like, but I hate criminals so much. Um, and you know, he goes out on his next case and accidentally kills a suspect and he doesn't want to get demoted. Whoopsie. (laughs) (laughs) It is a legitimate whoopsie, but like, okay. He, he throws a punch at the guy and that's not a whoopsie. You're like, oh, Dana Andrews, you should not be punching that suspect. Yeah. Um, but the killing him is a whoopsie. He punches this dude once, and it's so hard the guy dies, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I think it's explained late, way, like, 30 minutes later in the movie, he had, like, a silver plate in his head. So when he, like, when Dana Andrews punches him, like, the plate in his head, like, does something. Anyway... Um, it's, it also is like comedically heightened because immediately after killing this guy, he's like, wow, he was a war hero and he was like helping out at the orphanage downtown (laughs) 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 and he had kids. (laughs) Um, 
I, I maybe not to that extreme, but he uh, anyway. <laughs> Very good movie. Um, Dana Andrews decides that he's gonna like uh, frame this local crime boss that he doesn't that he has a vendetta against. Um, and then like he falls for this girl he meets, but in the process of framing this crime boss, he accidentally implicates um, Gene Tierney's dad. And he's like, Oh my gosh, I'm so in love with Gene Tierney. And now I'm going to send her father to jail, but I can't give up, you know, the truth because then I'll go to jail. Um, it's really good. It's really good. And the, um, the other thing that I thought was so cool is that this is like a really like dense layered plot. And, um, but I think it does a really good job. It's like a, an hour, 45 minutes. It's like a pretty short movie. But it does a really good job of like taking time to like really get to know people. Um, You know, you go meet Gene Tierney's dad. And Gene Tierney's dad, who is like in any other movie, if you cut 10 minutes out of this movie, you just meet that guy and he's a plot device. In this movie, he's like a character. He has like... He doesn't have, like, you know, motivations in the way that, like, Dana Andrews' character does. But, like, he has stuff going on, and he gets to tell a story. And, like, you just pause and linger on, like, this guy, who's a little quirky, he's like a little oddball kind of guy, gets to tell a story that's important to him. And then you go meet, like, Dana Andrews gets uh, lunch at the same diner every day because um, the owner, he, like... The owner, she had, like, a deadbeat husband who beat her, and um, he sent that guy to jail. Oh, Twin Peaks. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you get to know the lady who owns the diner. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And and it's all about, like, there's so much stuff that is, like, ooh, life in the big city, life in New York. It's so glitzy and glamorous, and, and, you know, you get to know the people who own the diner, and you get to know, like... You know, the cab driver, you get to know this other cab driver. It's like all this, like, stuff that's in Twin Peaks where, like, these people who might not matter, quote-unquote, get stories that is lingered on in this movie. But there's also the dark underbelly of cops who just kill suspects for no reason and, and crime bosses. <laughs> there, Okay, here's the other thing. Is there, there is a crime boss um, who just keeps inhaling a weird substance and that's not explained for the entire movie? <laughs> Tell me if you've heard that one before. <laughs> I kept expecting someone to explain what he is inhaling. It's not like he's inhaling it. He's got a little tube that he just like presses in his nose. And it's like, is that Coke in a tube? What is that? Was he just, is like, that Flonase? Like, laughing gas or something? I don't know. I don't know what his thing is. But he just keeps like putting some shit in his nose. And no one comments on it. No one's like, hey, why does that guy keep putting shit in his nose? <laughs> <laughs> but it is literally the same thing that Dennis Hopper's character does in Blue Velvet. Yeah. So, um, yeah, really, really good movie. Really good movie. Uh, made, made me excited to go watch Laura one of these days. So, yeah. Um, for stairs, um, I gave it a D plus. I feel like this is kind of a default grade for a lot of classic Hollywood stuff that I've been watching lately, where they put these nice stairs in. But the thing is, that there is a set with a nice stairs in it. And there is another set 
that is at the is supposed to be at the top of those stairs, but those two sets are not actually on top of one another, so you yeah. never see someone use the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You just, like, through the magic of an editing, it is implied that these are the same stairs, but you're... I'm pretty sure those are not the same stairs. Yeah. <laughs> or even if they were the same stairs, there is a camera set up at the bottom and there is a camera set up at the top and we are not going to take an entire day to light the stairs <laughs> right. So we're just going to cut. <laughs> yeah. I feel like in general, uh, for us, like the D range is like, I saw some stairs. Yeah. That's about it. But I did see some you stairs. You turned in your assignment. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> F is just like... There were no stairs in this movie. Yeah. And it was a D plus because there were some really nice stairs, particularly in the police station. It had like a sort of like square spiral thing going on. It was kind of art deco, you know. Yeah. A movie from 1950. Yeah. Sorry if there was some weird sound there. I moved the mic slightly closer to me. Yeah. Um, the conversation. So I did this slightly out of order. I literally watched this one today. Yeah. Um. But I'm saving the best for last, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a movie that I was just really taken by. Mm -hmm. The Conversation was a good fucking movie. Hey, you know I what's was... a good movie is The Conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was debating between a few different movies, including Blade Runner, um, mm -hmm. which I'm going to try and watch Blade Runner, the 2049 or whatever. Um, and also I want to watch Sorry to Bother You soon because it was a movie mm -hmm. that a friend said I should oh. watch for that. And then it came up last time. So I'm just, I just keep thinking about it. Yeah. Because, M, M pointed yes. out. Um, I was just like exhausted at the end of last recording <laughs> and like, was like just nodding being like, you're saying words, you're saying words. I kept saying Bootsy Collins when I meant Boots Riley at the end yeah. of the last episode. <laughs> and neither of us really noticed that I kept saying Bootsy Collins instead of Boots Riley. <laughs> Shout out to M, seemingly the only listener who noticed, or the only listener who's nice enough to have told me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if we do some wild shit on this podcast, please feel free to correct us. Um, that was the kind of thing where I think there was like a brief moment where my brain was like, what did Autumn say? Like when you said it, Bootsy Collins? But I was, I was like dead at the end of that recording. Um, I was, I literally just kicked you out of my home and immediately went to bed. <laughs> anyway, the conversation, good fucking movie. Yeah. Um, I, I ended up kind of watching it. So I thought it'd be funny to watch Sofia Coppola's dad's movie, mm. you know? Um, everybody knows Sofia Coppola, but did you know that her dad used to make movies too? <laughs> um, so... Yeah, the main, the other reason why it was on my mind is because the music box keeps tweeting about how they're having these screenings and people should watch it. And um, I would love to. I'm not going one, to. I'm sure this would be great in theaters. Two, the sound design yeah. on this movie is fucking incredible. Yeah. And I watched it on Hulu. If you have Hulu, you can just watch it for free. Mm. Did you know that? You don't have to go to a theater. And then I put in sound canceling headphones mm. that I like normally list just when I'm working. I like listen to podcasts or music or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I can just like get in the zone. So I was listening on those and they were so good at sound canceling that there are moments where I thought that it went into the not sound canceling mode because of like the sound design being like you're in this like spacey environment where you can mm -hmm. like hear like birds chirping and things and I would like check and it'd be like, no, it's 
sound canceling. Yeah. So I actually highly recommend watching this movie on sound canceling headphones. Yeah. Uh, it was an incredible fucking way to watch it. Yeah. This is, um, I saw this movie, um, when I was in high school, so it's been a very long time, but there are definitely, there are certainly like still images and moments that linger in my mind, even if I've forgotten most of it at this point. But I saw this movie because I was really into the first two Godfather movies, and then I was like, well, I should go see this movie that came out between them, I guess. I guess. Sure. Yeah. Um, this movie kicks the shit out of either Godfather movie. Yeah. <laughs> this movie is fucking good. Um, also, I was shocked to see a very young Harrison Ford in here. Like, I knew that he was in stuff mm-hmm. before Star Wars, but you always kind of hear that he just had, like, a bunch of bit roles. Yeah. And a number of them uncredited for a long time. Yeah. And then, like, Star Wars is, like, when people paid attention to him. Mm-hmm. And so, and I knew that, like, Harrison Ford appeared in some Coppola films, kind of through the connection with George Lucas. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I knew that he's like, has a small part in Apocalypse Now, where he plays a character named G. Lucas. Yeah. Um, but I forgot that a full three years before... Um, he's in this, like, he was in this movie. Because it's actually the connection is American Graffiti. Mm. Which is a movie that you said, I I barely remember American Graffiti and remember not liking it a lot. I like that movie. I barely remember it. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I don't know, like, if I have a ton to say about the actual plot of it. Like, this is a great movie that I recommend seeing. Um, I was... Slightly immune, like, I was, like, it's a movie made in 1974 about, like, the surveillance state, where it's just, like, man, you know what the problem is? What if this gets used for a murder? Mm-hmm. Um, and, because there's just, like, far deeper and more complex problems with surveillance than, like, yeah. murder. Yeah. Uh, but then you pointed out that... You know, I last year, the worst movie I watched was <laughs> Eye in the Sky, a movie about, isn't it really cool that we can use the sur- surveillance state for murder? But what if maybe there's a slightly morally ambiguous thing of, well, we could kill a bunch of terrorists, but what if one girl gets injured? What if um, one civilian gets slightly injured? I, um... God, I fucking hate that movie so much. This movie is so much better. Here's the um, thing about this movie is it's been a very, very, very long time since I've seen it. Yeah. And on the one hand, I'm almost like, we should do this for the podcast at some point. On the other hand, um, pretty soon we're going to do Blow Up, which is an Antonioni film that I have not seen, uh, which I was Googling, or I was looking just now because I wanted to see if Monica Vitti is in it. She is not. So I should, um, I guess I'll try to watch Red Desert sometime soon. Red Desert is good. Or or La Ventura. I don't know. One of those two. Red Desert. I haven't seen La Ventura, but um, Red Desert is good. Okay, so I will I will try to squeeze in because I was also in the back of my mind like, oh, I've never seen a Monica Vitti film. She just passed. I should go see that. And I was like, oh well, Blow Up will probably be one of those. Um, so I have not seen Blow Up. We're gonna cover that soon. I have seen Blow Out, which like. Importantly, this movie comes out right before Nixon resigns. Yeah. Blowout is a Brian De Palma film, which is exploring a lot of the same premise. There's a lot of overlap between the conversation and Blowout, but it's a Brian De Palma film from 1980. And uh, 
Brian De Palma is a fucking sicko. <laughs> yeah. He makes pervert movies for perverts. <laughs> um, so I'm any any thoughts I have about the conversation, um I can probably revisit on the blowout episode, uh, which I'm very excited for because um the the conversation is a movie for people who like going to the cinema and and thinking serious yeah. thoughts. Blowout is a pervert movie for perverts. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's not even the most depraved fucking De Palma film that I I <laughs> I really like. <laughs> we could watch Sisters anytime. <laughs> yeah. Um so uh, um but yeah, uh for stairs I gave it in uh, I might put you bump it up, bump it down. Uh, a plus might be right. Okay. So there are multiple stairs. Um, there are like ones in his apartment building. And uh, what's great about it is that every anytime that he's going to go up or down any of the stairs in his apartment building, um, he's going around like he is like a spy in a spy movie. <laughs> like he will like quickly duck and like look down the stairs and things like mm-hmm. he's like all of his actions is just like clearly extremely paranoid yeah. all the time because he, his like whole thing is that he can just listen in on anyone. And so he just like, is constantly aware of all the ways that he can be. Other people can listen yeah. to him. Um, which of course climaxes with a great moment where he just rips his entire apartment apart because yeah. he's like seeing if he can find a bug somewhere. God. Um, I just remembered the the end of the conversation. That movie's good. Yeah. <laughs> I just remembered how that movie ends, and it like it's all just flooding back to me now. Um, Shit, dude. But anyway, <laughs> but none of them are like super ornate. Mm-hmm. But there is a a shot early on where he goes to the like you know fancy like company corporate building where his like current client is. The basic premise of this is that like he's a security expert security expert you know surveillance expert um he just like gets hired by different people like he's not like working for a government or something Mm -hmm. um and he's like kind of haunted by one where he he did a case and then it like resulted in the murder of three people um and now he's like afraid this is happening again Mm -hmm. so anyway he goes to like the the corporate offices basically of his current client and there's this like giant stairwell mm-hmm. uh behind the receptionist desk it's just like this like ornate like spiral mm-hmm. staircase that's going up um and the receptionist is like oh like he'll either come down to meet you or like he'll have us send you up um and i was like all right like someone's gonna go up or down these stairs and then they have him go up in an elevator and i was like come on <laughs> Um, and so I tweeted on Media Pile about how if nobody goes up or down these stairs, I'm going to fucking lose it. I forget exactly <laughs> how I worded it. But um, and then literally like the last 10 minutes, uh, there's a moment where he tries to go up the stairs and a bunch of like security people come and carry him down the stairs. Um, and I was like screaming at my desk because <laughs> I was watching this while I was at work. <laughs> Uh, it was a great scene. Mm. So I think I think the tease at the beginning makes mm-hmm. this an A plus for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the like seeing some stairs and being like, man, someone better go up or down those stairs. And there's a whole scene where he like is trying to go up and get stopped and like carried down. It's just good. Mm-hmm. Some good fucking stairs. You know, Gene Hackman's fucking good. Yeah. 
I like Gene Hackman a lot. There was a moment when I was watching this and I was like, Gene, Gene Hackman was not in the pawnbroker. But he but feels who the fu- <laughs> like who, who the fuck was? And I looked up like the actor's name and then I just Googled the actor and I was like, this man was not in the pawnbroker. I think Gene was. And I Googled his name, pawnbroker, and I saw it and I was like, oh, I don't even know if Gene Hackman looked like this at the time, but it looks like they took that guy and they said, style him to look as close as Gene Hackman as possible. <laughs> um, he just like has hair and mustache that he just never has in any other thing, but that are just like Gene Hackman. <laughs> they... <laughs> I don't... If you told me, if you just like were like, oh yeah, Pawnbroker, that's one of my favorite Gene Hackman movies, I'd be like, yeah, sure. I wouldn't yeah. question it. I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> Um. Yeah, look at this. That is That's... not the man who's in the bomb broker. Rod Steger is not the man who's in the bomb broker. Just look at, let's go to the images. None of these images is the man who's in the bomb broker. No, no. <laughs> um, you can see when I did this earlier. Look, looks they like literally Gene styled him to look like Gene Ackman. <laughs> Back in 1964. <laughs> Um, anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, A+. Plus. Uh, the other, I have two that I'm doing back-to-back, because I, I figured, yeah. uh, that we we would both have some things to say about the conversation, so I grouped these ones yeah. together. But, um, right after I watched The Virgin Suicide, uh, or finished watching it, I watched Lydia Lunch, The War Is Never Over, uh, which Gene is... Gene Hackman's still alive? And that's wild. Um, good for him, though. Up, upon the death of Sidney Poitier, Hack, Hackman became the oldest living um, best uh, best actor Oscar winner. That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, Lydia Lunch. Sorry. Sorry. The War is Never Over. <laughs> um, this was directed by Beth B. None of the names that I'm saying mean anything to you. Nope. Um, and it's from 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Are you aware of the no wave movement? Mm, I've heard those words put together before. Yeah. Um, so she was part of Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. Um, no wave was this. It's kind of considered post punk, but it actually it was starting during the punk movement. Um, and is like I like no wave a lot, and I also see a lot of parallels between what no wave was doing and then what was also happening, like kind of concurrently in Iceland with the Icelandic punk scene. Um, I think there's like very similar ways of approaching punk music and out of no wave, like probably one of the biggest ones that kind of starts there, um, and comes out of it is Sonic youth. And like some of their later stuff, I feel like is like moving a little outside of what you would consider no wave. Um, but they're one of the big ones. Um, Sonic Youth, perpetually a band that I'm like, I should get into Sonic Youth. I bet I'd like them, but never got into them. Yeah. But like, so early ones, um, there's the Contortionists, um, or the the Contortions, um, which is one that I know I, I've brought up before when I've been on uh, Hot Singles, mm. which is James Chance, um, who does like a lot of like kind of jazz inspired, like weird screaming music. Um, Teenage Mutant the Jerks is like extremely fast, um, abrasive punk music, like stuff like Melt Banana, I feel like kind of comes out of 
like what Teenage Jesus and the Jerks was doing. Uh, but it was like really to me, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks is one of the first bands that's like, let's take punk and let's just like make it even simpler and even faster. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And like even more just like the guitars, like every single hit is just like very intense drumming. Mm -hmm. um, it's like sharp stabs on the guitars, you know? Um, and she's just like singing with like usually a fairly high pitched loud voice and shouting things like little orphans running through the bloody snow. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, and then other stuff that came out of it, uh, Mars DNA theoretical girls. I'm just reading these from the UB article, but like these also come in, uh, some of these are referenced in this documentary <coughs> and then a little bit oh. at, like as it progresses, uh, you get the B 52s, um, you get, uh, I hate the B-52s. yeah, Sonic Youth comes out of this, um, also to some degree talking heads, like a lot of this is happening around CBGBs. So like talking heads is also, yeah. uh, I feel like it's like moving even further beyond, um, perhaps my two most incoherent, like set of opinions is that I hate the B-52s and love the talking heads. Yeah. But also like that's fair. <laughs> same kind of um they're kind of they're i can't tell you what the difference is between those two except that one of them is good and one of them is bad <laughs> one of them is doing a song called rock lobster and the other one is making an album called fear of music about how you're paranoid about everything and i think that's the difference yeah. it's like talking heads is just like yeah like both of them are like weird nerdy white guy kind of mm -hmm. but b-52s is kind of just that and talking heads is like this guy is like on something though <laughs> <laughs> um anyway beth b it was like a person who was doing no wave cinema stuff mm -hmm. um specifically started with it was scott b and beth b there were a couple mm -hmm. and then i think like now they I don't know if they like broke up or they're just doing separate work or whatever. But anyway, she did this on her own. Um, and in terms of the actual documentary, like if people want like a very, like here's an overview of Lydia Lynch. Mm. Um, I think that th like, this is useful for giving that, but also there are parts of this that I found really interesting. And there are other parts where I was just like, yeah, I would just like to watch some, like, of Lydia Lunch's actual, like, movies that she made. Right. Because mostly I know Lydia Lunch from, um, like, there's Teenagers and the Jerks, which I like, and then there's some of her, like, spoken word stuff that came later, um, and where I think she's just kind of, like, annoying sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, and, but I, like, watching the some of the clips from, like, some of the films that she's done, I was like, some of this stuff is interesting in, like, dealing with... Um, like this, like feminine sexuality stuff. Um, let me let me like quick pull up films and make sure I get the uh name of this one right. Um, why is it not here? Um. Anyway, I I I will see if I can find it. But um, she, God, she was in so many different films this is just like too much here um but yeah there are some that like seemed interesting and i you know i'd want to check out um but i would say overall like as a film there's some of this where it was just like 
I feel like they're not like exploring some of this stuff mm. as much as I want to. And I think the biggest thing is I kind of wish that they took some of them more like here's a retrospective of her career out mm. and did more of like, there are some moments in this that work for me and some of like part of it, this is also getting the, the territory of like both of us were going to watch um, three colors blue this week. And then we didn't cause we were both sad and didn't want to watch a sad movie. I had a hard week for yeah. like, mental health reasons that I won't get into on the podcast. I really, really, really wanted to watch Three Colors Blue um, along with repertory screenings. And I'm still probably going to try and knock it out this coming week because I think this coming week is going to be a little easier on me. Fingers crossed, knock on wood, etc. Yeah. Um, But I did not have it in me to watch a sad movie this week. Yeah. I watched an entire season of Arrow instead. The other thing for me is um, if I, it's a lot easier for me to watch some stuff in English while I'm like working or doing something else. Um, Whereas like foreign language stuff, I have to like sit down and watch. That was the other reason why I didn't watch. But anyway, I bring this up because Kieślowski, I've brought up on this podcast before, talked about like he originally did documentary and then moved into fiction film and it was around the ethics of like... The stories that are really interesting to tell often involve a certain amount of like pulling stuff out of people that gets to a level of like discomfort or like to how much am, how much am I like pushing someone to talk about things that they don't want to talk about and make public in a way that's like they may not even fully understand what that means and things. I say this because the stuff that's interesting in, in this Lydia Lunch documentary is there are stuff where she talks about like being sexually abused as a child and going into like her talking about that abuse and how it informs her work and how she like tries to think about this stuff and also how she struggles with like approaching sex and then approaching sex in ways where she like sometimes worries like am I taking on predatory behaviors because this is just like how I got introduced to it and that stuff was interesting but none of it gets explored but also it's in a way of like how much can you push her to do this though Mm. right yeah like there's an yeah. interesting story to be told there, but I also don't know if that version is a documentary about Lydia Lunch or if that is taking some of the stuff that she talks about and then like fictionalizing, fictionalizing and yeah. Um, anyway, the, the, the name of the movie, I found it here is the right side of my brain, mm-hmm. which is, um, a movie that uh, was widely regarded by many people as misogynist when it came out. Uh, and it is literally just Lydia Lunch speaking in her own words about the kind of kinky sex she likes. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, um, I might try and check that, that movie out just because it, like, that was the most, oh, Teenagers and the Jerks. Of, like, any stuff that I've seen of Lydia Lunch, like, past Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, which mm-hmm. is really the part that I have affection for. But, um, yeah, the other thing here is that, like, it was made in 2019, and it's extremely just, like, a 2019 documentary where you have digital video of people sitting and you're interviewing them, and then you just, like intercut archival footage but some of it is just like photos that you just like are on a computer like doing a digital zoom and things right um in a way that like it's just not exciting documentary making for me yeah you know yeah um like i i wish that there was just more i kind of wish that 
there just been more cameras rolling back during Teenage Jesus and the Jerks or like some of these other periods and that we were just getting more of that footage rather than. I do not watch a ton of um, documentaries. Generally speaking, it's just not um, just not like my wheelhouse. Um, <clears throat> and I um, I saw the decline of Western civilization and a couple of Herzog documentaries when I was like 16. And it made me think that's what all documentaries are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so every time I watch a documentary, like you said, that's like, Oh, we're going and pulling up archival footage and trying to like, you know, make it not just this camera sitting still for two hours, you know, yeah. I, every time I see some of that shit, I'm just like, man, a grizzly man. That's a good movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Decline of Western Civilization Part 2. Now there's a movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think documentaries a space where this sometimes happens more because there are lots of fiction films that are, are badly made. Yeah. I'm not even saying that this is like a terribly made documentary, but mm. it's just like functionally made in a way that for a movie that is about someone who like changed how like certain aspects of punk music sound. Mm -hmm. It just felt like weirdly unbefitting to have like this. Yeah. Boring of a. Yeah. <laughs> like way of producing a documentary. Yeah. Like I wanted the documentary itself to feel raw because that's what I associate a lot of her work with is like this, like extreme rawness of like, mm -hmm. I am just like putting parts of myself out there, but also in like ways that I am like intentionally intensifying to be abrasive to people. Mm -hmm. And this documentary did not feel abrasive, you mm -hmm. know, in ways that I wanted as something that's about Lydia Lunch to feel abrasive. Yeah. And there, there are, there are a lot of like good abrasive documentaries. Like that is a like mm -hmm. long tradition of documentary filmmaking, like as long as documentary filmmaking has been around, but there are all, just as many like, <laughs> We're just going to show you the archival footage. We're going to show you the interviews. We're going to show you some B-roll and some narration. You yeah. Know? Oh, the other... I thought this was kind of funny. And Lydia Lunch is, like, not a trans woman. I'm uh, going to preface it with this. Okay. There was a, a moment that just made me laugh where she's on a tour bus and this guy is, like, telling kind of stupid jokes. And then he says... What's the difference between a faggot, a queer, and a gay person? Um, and Lydia Lunch just immediately responds to him, I'm a faggot, you're queer, and gay people are just happy. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I kind of feel that. Mm. Sometimes I feel that way. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, I didn't remember a single step in this movie, F. Um, so for me... Um, oh, I was going to tell you a quick funny story about Three Colors Blue, which is, um, so I was also going to tell you a quick funny story about Three Colors Blue, which is until two or three days ago when I was pulling it up on Criterion because I thought maybe I was going to watch it, um, I had this movie mixed up with I Am Curious Blue in my head. Which is I'm, like a, yeah. a classic mistake. I think everybody does this once in their life, but it was a little embarrassing to do it after I've been aware of both of these movies 
I have not seen I Am Curious Blue. I have not seen Three Colors Blue. But I've been aware of these movies yeah. for long enough that I should have known which one was Kieślowski and which one was not Kieślowski. <laughs> yeah. I was like, who? I do I not know I've recall. seen all of the, like, I Am Curious movies as well. Um, um, I Am Curious Blue is, like, the second part, too. Also, yeah. is the other thing. It'll get Seoman. Um, I do not. I'm not familiar with Seoman. Um, um, yeah, he also did Yellow. Yeah. Which they were supposed to be one movie, apparently. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. I just thought you would find that amusing. <laughs> um, I was gonna tell a thing about. <coughs> I pulled up the Jean Cocteau um, Orpheus on Criterion Channel to watch this week, and I watched. About half of it, maybe a little less than half of it, and fell asleep on my couch because I was tired and it was late. Um, and I was going to tell you something about it, but then I was like, oh no, I'll just finish that movie before next time and then yeah. tell you the whole thing. So, Casablanca? Casablanca. Um, last night I started playing Grim Fandango, which is a <laughs> video game. It sort of like pays homage to a lot of like classic Hollywood stuff. Yeah, I feel like there's especially some like Casablanca references. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the home, the whole game is like paying homage to a lot of like classic Hollywood stuff that has just been kind of like where my headspace has been at lately. Uh, but then specifically, you get to the end. Um, the the game is split into like four chapters. You get to the end of the first chapter, start of the second chapter. Um, Manny Calavera, the character you've been playing as, like, steps out, and he's in the white suit. He's being told that, oh, downstairs is the girl you've been looking for. Um, He's the owner of this bar all of a sudden. (laughs) And it's like, oh, this is just Casablanca. (laughs) Yeah. And I'd had Casablanca on my mind a bunch recently for some reason, like... You know what it was? It was that Nora told me she'd never seen it. And I was like, oh my God, you've never seen Casablanca. Even though I know that's not a movie Nora would like. I just got outraged. Yeah. Um, so I, it's been on my mind a bunch and I was feeling pretty depressed this morning. So I put on Casablanca. You know what's still the best movie ever made? Um, The Mad Fox? No, Casablanca. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, just the best movie ever made. It has been for 80 years now. Um, yeah. God, it's good. It is a good movie. It's so fucking good. Like, if you want, like, this style of Hollywood film... You literally cannot do better than Casablanca. They never made one as good as this. (laughs) There There are other movies that evoke this for me... But nothing is as good as Casablanca at what Casablanca is. It is... They... The whole studio system... Like... All of it was worth it to make this one movie. <laughs> um, it's fucking incredible. Yeah. And then they made it, and then they kept trying to keep it going, and they should have just known. Just quit while you're ahead. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is... Because I was on HBO Max, because that's where this movie is, um, and I was looking at other, like, you know, old movies that are on HBO Max. HBO Max is, like, that's pretty good for having old movies, because it's just, like, any Warner Brothers movies they have the rights to, they seem to just throw up on there. So, uh, I was also, you know, I saw Citizen Kane, and I just had a moment of thinking about for a second, like, man... Citizen Kane and Casablanca came out within a year of each other, and other people dared to keep making movies after that. 
<laughs> I had to quit. <laughs> yeah. Um. I. Oh, God. It is. It's. Speaking. Speaking of scenes where someone tears their entire apartment apart. Citizen <laughs> <laughs> Kane. Um. Like obviously, this is like the thing about it. Like everybody says this, but like it really. I forgot it because people quote the lines from Casablanca, you know, um, people, you know, I was doing it while I was watching as I was just tweeting, you know, um, I'm shocked, shocked to find there's gambling in here. Here's your winning, sir. Yeah. <laughs> because it's a, people quote the lines, but the other thing about it is like just the acting, which is just a style of acting that is not in vogue anymore. That is just like so fast paced. So, um, yeah, like, um, qu- quick and and witty, but not not Joss Whedon. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and and I just forgot how funny this movie is. And then I, you know, um, every time that uh Ilsa, like any time that Ingrid Bergman is on screen and soft focus in that movie, I got teary eyed. Yeah, when she says "play it, Sam," I I genuinely started crying on my couch. <laughs> Just because I was like, oh, there's Ingrid Bergman in Soft Focus. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I gave it... I gave it an A plus for stairs. I don't yeah. know... It has, it has the same problem as where the sidewalk ends. Where you see the stairs, and they're very nice, and there is a shot where they move along the stairs, but there's a little trick photography happening, I think, maybe... Um, it looks a little goofy where I think maybe they removed a wall of the set or something. And it just looks a little funny sometimes. Um, but, um, it, man, those steps up into Rick's room in the cafe are fucking good. They're like, there's like this really nice handrail and there's a little curve to it. And like, they're like black steps with like, um, white um like like the the horizontal part where your feet go are black and then like the like elevation is white and so it has this sort of ebony and ivory like look to it that's kind of like piano keys yeah um and so it looks really fucking good <laughs> um I'm trying to see if I can just get a picture but you you would think but um for um it, this makes sense but for the third man there was like a account it was like a blog spot or something where people were posting it was a person posting stairs from old movies mm-hmm. um and i don't think they had a ton of old movies up on there but they did have multiple from the third man which makes sense because that is a movie all about stairs yeah <laughs> um but it, just like seeing that so early on and us like having the idea for this podcast and not mm. even doing it yet, uh, just really spoiled me on the ability to see pictures of stairs from movies <laughs> that I just watched. Um, um, anyway, yeah, I just, I, I just think that Casablanca is like the best movie ever made. I, yeah. I, I know I say that a lot. I mean it. I mean it about Casablanca. Yeah. Um, Oh, only other thing. Every other time I've watched this movie, 
I think every other time I've watched this movie, I've been a man. I don't know that I've seen this movie since I've become a woman. Maybe I have, but I don't know. Anyway, um, every other time I've watched this movie, I've like keyed in um, a lot on Humphrey Bogart because I think like, you know, he's Humphrey Bogart. He's the star. Yeah. He is like the quintessential movie star. You know, like no one has ever been more of a movie star than Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Um, this time I keyed in on Ingrid Bergman a lot more. Um, uh, this movie works because of her. Like this movie does not work if she doesn't put in like one of the greatest acting performances of all time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I just love her. Um, and I love when they shoot her in soft focus and they just make her look pretty. My last, she's so pretty. My last film, your last film. Before I do this, I'm going to quick talk about uh, Mark Mikrana, mm-hmm. the Icelandic version of um, Dracula, which uh, I finally finished part one today. Um, I just dropped my notebook because I took notes on it. Um, and so part two starts at what? Like the chapter one start of part two starts on uh, 243 of a... You weren't kidding about those footnotes being a bit yeah. much. Uh, of a book that, if I like, skip the afterword, is uh, 289 pages. <laughs> so most of this is part one, which is the part where um, oh, they they like change names in here, but like the Keanu Reeves guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> Jonathan Harker. Yeah, um, I forget what they change it. It's Harker. It's something Harker, but it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway. Um, the part where he's in Dracula's castle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the rest is apparently like super sped up and it's the part that's more changed. Uh, stuff is fairly different. Wait, all almost... of that is just Jonathan in the castle? Yeah. No fucking way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's been a while since I've read Dracula. I don't remember what all is like new or not. And at a certain point I gave up on footnotes cause they're a lot, but there are ones that are like this, like appears slightly differently in this section. It's like in this chapter or whatever. Um, but I just stopped reading them cause there's just too fucking many of them. Um, but there are a lot of stairs in Machmirkana at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's lots of anytime that he's going upstairs, he's going to get banged. But so instead of the, well, <laughs> Uh, pointedly, they don't have sex. But so instead of the three vampire sisters, it's just one ambiguously related to the count woman who um, Harker just falls extremely in love with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like uh, hypnosis fetish in love with. Uh, there's much made about her, how she hypnotizes him and uh how some of it is that he wants to give in to the hypnosis but then there's also the part of him that like doesn't want to fully because he thinks of mina is the mm. the or no uh mina is the dracula one it's uh vilma in the Icelandic version um anyway um so anytime he's going up the stairs he's basically going to encounter her um, and she's gonna like always put her lips to his neck. Mm-hmm. Every single description involves this. Every <laughs> single time it happens, uh, it's just incredibly horny. And then anytime he goes down the stairs, he's about to see some wild fucking shit. <laughs> um, and it's always like the most intense going down the stairs. And so the first time he gets attacked by like 
the one part is it's Dracula, so it's like weirdly racist about these like ape men uh-huh. who are like down there and are somehow related to Dracula or something. Um, a lot of it is like ambiguously explained. Um, which makes sense for a horror thing. But anyway, goes down the first time he's attacked. The second time he goes down the, these really intense stairs that are like described very ornately and take a long time to go down. Uh, he witnesses like a satanic ritual where there's like hundreds of these ape men. Mm-hmm. Just continues to like point out how ape-like they are. It's weird. Um, and then like witnesses Dracula uh, sucking the blood of a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I'll add it in here after we're, whatever, but, yeah. uh, I'm going to say A. Okay. Some good stairs. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Um, the other thing that, again, I'd have to reread Dracula to like really know how much to compare this, but a lot is made in Machmurkrana of like Dracula's weird, like Nietzschean Superman philosophy and like that he wants to like go and start a revolution and basically like use the burgeoning like um like masses like there's like a a reference to the haymarket riots and yeah, stuff none of this is and in so Dracula. he like wants to use that to like stoke support against like it's weird because it's like this is being written like before the full on rise of fascism, but it's basically him being like, Hey, I think I'm a super mensch and I want to like go to Europe and become a fascist dictator is essentially what's happening. Um, None of and this. that Nietzsche guys, gr- <laughs> they don't like specifically say Nietzsche, but there's like so much like super, like super mensch and blah, blah, blah stuff. And like we superior people deserve to rule. And yeah. Um, but anyway, Yeah. So it's weird because there is still a little bit of like huh. the the orientalism around. Were you looking at? I thought Nietzsche was like, if I had to guess, I would have said that Nietzsche died in like nineteen twenty five or something. He like his he died in nineteen hundred. It was just slightly my my time scales off. I was like, I can't imagine Dracula interacting with like Nietzsche stuff at all, but I guess it would have been like literally concurrent. And yeah. it, it just in my head, it, Nietzsche was like slightly after. Yeah. And so there, there is still some like Orientalism around Count Dracula in it, which is also in the book. Yeah. But I feel like it's a little bit less a book about how these like swarthy Eastern Europeans or like European men are going to come and like take our women. Yeah. And more about how like this weird capitalist, like Ubermensch, philosophy is going to like throw Europe into like chaos, which honestly is a lot closer <laughs> to what happens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that part's been good. I hear that the uh, part two is uh, extremely rush and not very good, but uh, part one was great. Um, also there. So th- I also don't remember this in Dracula. There's an extended description of he looks out the window and sees a girl who has been, like, probably killed by Dracula. Uh, and her, like, neck is broken and, like, she's, like, bleeding a bunch out of her neck and is, like, laying in a bush. Um, and then, like, the family comes and they, like, take a, a branch and, like, stab it into her so she won't 
Presumably, I'm guessing, so she won't become a vampire. Mm. Um, but it like has like the staking part and everything. And I just don't remember that being at all in... Um, like, I could be wrong, but I just... There are so many descriptions of, like, bosoms and, like, bloody mm-hmm. necks and things in Machmirkrana that, like, are stuff that I associate with vampires, but... I not don't with think Dracula. You, yeah, it's not really in Dracula. Yeah. It's, like, a little bit in Dracula, but it's more, like, suggested rather than just, like, here is a lengthy paragraph describing, like, a blood from a woman's neck. <laughs> um, Good book, though. The other thing... This is just a dumb, funny story. I forgot slash didn't realize that Bram Stoker dry, died in 1912, which means that, like... um. Man, like his his body was still warm when uh, fucking Murnau was like, "I'm gonna make my, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna make Nosferatu." I always thought it was like in my head. It was like, man, why is Bram Stoker's estate so mad about uh, Nosferatu? And then realizing, um, no, no, like. <laughs> that book was still on store shelves. They weren't even reprinting it. They were just printing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things that's, that's weird about this. Cause it's like, yeah. Um, his, his widow was like famously litigious yeah. early on. Um, and there was nothing with this. Nothing, nothing about this. Yeah. But yeah, so like this, was published in like 1901. Um, so, um, it was good though. If people like Dracula, I recommend checking this out, but I feel like it's going to be a lot less about, um, how like good, uh, like note keeping and like archival work saves the day. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how it's going to end, but apparently it's very fresh. Yeah. So. Anyway, the actual last thing I'm going to talk about, which is the Mad Fox, also known as Love Thy Name Be Sorrow. Um, I I think that the the title is like famously impossible to translate because mm-hmm. um, it's it's like love and love, nasana love, like if you're like doing the translate, and then like the and is the one that you use where you're like. Listing two things, but also kind of including everything else that would be included in that. But you're saying love and love at all. Hmm. And then, like, nasana is, like, a hard thing to translate as well. Um, anyway, um, this movie was... So, th- this is interesting. I got this movie on a whim. Um, I was pre-ordering uh, Come Drink With Me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I kind of just want to, like, order something that seems like something that I might find interesting and just like do that thing that I used to do more back in the day where I just buy a Blu-ray cause I think I might like it. Right. And I just watch it. Um, and I start watching it. And so the very beginning is there's like a volcano eruption and it's like this omen. Um, and the, the entire film is like extremely red during this part. Um, and there's also this, like the, the intro sequence, like the credits, um, are these very like elaborate uh paintings that it's going over that are like kind of in like you know brush like ink brush stuff um and so it's like oh this is like this like has some style the the little intro sequence here 
But then I just felt like they were just using the red to like give it the sense of like, oh, there's a volcano erupting. And then it kind of just went away and it just felt like, oh, this is like an early color. Like it's 62, um, you know, Japanese film that <coughs> is Pardon. kind of just ending up being um, like a standard jiragaki. Mm hmm. Oh, just like a standard like period film where so the like base plot early on is um there's the like renowned Yasunori who like reads these omens and has access to this uh scroll called the Golden Crow and consults it and is like highly valued for being able to like tell fortunes and read omens and things by the, the Imperial Court. Um and then he has um a basically like somehow wasn't able to have kids and sent his two um, disciples to go seek out a girl. And like, based on the, you know, divining stuff, there's like specific conditions and they found these twin girls and they took one of them and the other one stayed with mm -hmm. the family. This like kind of happens prior to it. But, and so the, the older one who they take back is Sakaki. Um, and, the, the two disciples are uh, Abeno Yasuna, or just Yasuna, and then um, Abasia Doman, or just Doman. Um, and it's kind of just this, like, oh, there's this, like, Doma, like, Yasuna's clearly the better one, who's, like, uh, kind and, like, thoughtful about his, like, you know, master and um, is also in love with Sakaki. And so like, she wants him to also be this like successor. Um, but it hasn't been like fully resolved. And then because there's this volcano thing, the, the, um, Yasunori goes, is like going to talk to the emperor and gets ambushed by quote unquote bandits, which is actually Doman planned this. And there's this whole scheme that's underway to like, you know, kill the master and like, sow this discontent where then they can figure out, like he can like take the spot. Also the, the one thing that we get from Yasunori is that, um, the prediction like based on the omens is about, um, like there not being an heir and it causing chaos, um, which is implied in the beginning to be like, Oh, the emperor like doesn't have an heir. Um, because he hasn't had like a child yet. Um, and that's, what's going to like cause the, the failure and the breakdown of the state. And that kind of happens throughout the story. But also I think some of it is about like, yes, you already doesn't have an heir and that's also what's happening. Uh -huh. Anyway. So it's just like this, like Jedi Geki thing about like, Oh, here are these like scheming and blah, blah, blah. And like, yes. Uh, yes. trying to like uncover things. And it reaches this moment where I was like, oh, are we getting close to the end where like Yasuna's like figured out the plot, has gotten the um, the Golden Crow scroll back mm -hmm. and um, Sakaki is dead. She was tortured to death to figure out where it was. Um, and in the like confusion of him getting it back, Doman... Um, escapes and then like the wife who's like plotting with Doman uh dies in the house fire. 
and Yasuna is just like running out with like flames behind him and smoke um, and is like seeming like delirious. And I'm like, okay, there's going to be a little bit more resolution, but like, I feel like the, I know what this film is. And I checked and I was halfway through and then suddenly it was just the most vibrant yellow I've ever seen in a film of just like a giant field of yellow. And Yasuna was doing a kabuki dance, singing about like how love only brings sorrow and madness um, and was like wearing the uh, kimono of Sakaki and like wearing a headband that like represents his madness. Mm. Um, And I was like, what the fuck is going on? Um, And then the film sometimes went back to this like Jidaigeki stuff, but also just like progressively got like weird and more like delirious as it went on Um, where he like, Encounters the twin sister of Sakaki, um, falls in love with her, but keeps mistaking her for Sakaki. Um, and she doesn't want to correct him because she's starting to develop feeling for feelings for him and like also doesn't want to be like it's like upsetting him whenever she does. And she her name is Kuzunoa. And then she ends up uh there's like various situations that that happen, but um Yasuna ends up saving a white fox, but not realizing that it's a white fox. Um, because like they can shapeshift they're like Kitsune, like trickster spirits. Um, and just thinks it's an old woman, but like saves her life and then gets injured in the subsequent fighting because they're like, you know, trying to take over the throne and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so then the daughter of that white fox, uh, takes on the visage of Kuzunoa to nurse him back to health and like not reveal that she's a fox, but then she falls in love with him and he falls in love with her, but believes that he, that she's Kuzunoa and does not believe that she's Sakaki. And then it just becomes like three times this man has fallen in love with the woman who looks (laughs) like the same, like played by the same actress. Um, And there's a whole part where just like, you're essentially just watching a stage play Um, but they are like also using camera tricks where they can have the same actress play multiple characters during the stage play in a way that you couldn't with an actual stage play. Um, and they're like wild special effects being used. They use like 2d animation just drawn on the film. They use, um, like things that are from theater that are like quick change. So like whenever they transform from the, fox into like the visage of a human it's like this like quick change costume thing that they would use in like kabuki um and yeah it just became like fascinating as it went on Mm -hmm. also it was a movie about foxes and like (laughs) you know the big sadness at the end is that like she gets found out and he actually still loves her even though she's a kitsune Mm -hmm. but she is like convinced that because it it's been discovered that like this love is now forbidden and she has to leave him and her child that she had with him. Um, and the like end is just like the sadness of like she leaves. And this is like, I guess excised from a far longer play. Um, and later it would go on and more stuff is going to happen, but it just turns with, he's like, this ends with, he's like so stricken with sadness that he turns into a stone. Um, and it's just like a stone there. And I was just like, this movie is fucking incredible. <laughs> um, I love this movie a lot. It was it was wild, but I I recommend people check it out. Um, I feel like I did a fair amount of the plot there, but also 
seeing it is the like yeah. experience. Yeah. Also, like you were just coming at me with like names so quick that it, like yeah. a lot of the plot like. <laughs> yeah. Um. Um. The I'll I'll ask you about. You got this from Arrow, right? The yeah. DVD. Okay. Um. So yeah, I'm assuming like if people have the Arrow streaming service too, you could just watch it there. Yeah, I was gonna couple quick things for listeners and one thing for me. Thing for me, where did you watch Pastoral to Die in a con- to Die in the Country? Because I wanted to watch that and I wasn't able to track it down. I assume you just have a DVD of it or something. Uh, I can get you a copy of okay. it. Okay, even a better. legally acquired copy of it. Uh, even better. Um, two. Um. This is a question for listeners. Um, and I, let me... I leaned back for a second. Let me get, like, back in podcasting yeah. mode. Anyway, um, listeners, if any of you have the Arrow streaming service, let me know how you like it. I've been looking at it, and I'm like, only 50 bucks for a year. If we watch, like, two movies a month on that, that's worth it, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking about it. I haven't made a decision. If you have any strong feelings about the Arrow streaming service, let me know. Um, and then three, a heads up for listeners, um, Vinegar Syndrome, where we bought our Blu-rays of, um, Rebels of the Neon God has a Valentine's Day sale coming up that they just shot me an email about, um, that... Is going to start on February 11th. I don't know how long it's going to run. So if you are an early access listener of this podcast, um, it'll it'll hit a few days after this. If you are listening on the free feed, maybe it's too late. Maybe it's just because I think the 11th is a Friday. And so it might be like 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, I would guess. I don't know. Um. But yeah, look out for that. Um, Vinegar Syndrome, if people don't know. Like I say, we bought our Rebels of the Neon God Blu-rays there. I was just browsing. It is a lot of just, like, absolute trash. And and, and I say that with all the love I could possibly pour into. Just, like, go to their website. You will see so many, like, artfully cropped out titties on the covers of DVDs. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, You'll see blood. Oh, they should this one at the music box. Sensor. Yeah. There, there's a um, lot of blood. There's a lot of like... Browsing the Vinegar Syndrome website evokes the feeling to me of like walking around Blockbuster when I was a kid. Except it's like way more of like the stuff you always wished you would find at Blockbuster. Yeah. You know? Wait, like, it is this summer camp girls. That That's one's... just a porno. <laughs> <laughs> like, a lot of the time, you would get stuff at the video store, and it wouldn't, it just wouldn't be worth watching. Or at the very least, it wouldn't be as, like, tantalizing as it maybe looks. Yeah. At the very least, Vinegar Syndrome is coming through you with the, like, um, uh, covers for Blu-rays that are um, as tantalizing as you want it to be. I have no promises about the films contained with, but like, 
they package the shit well, and I'm sure some of it's good. So yeah, just wanted to give a shout out to that. Um, don't know if Rebels of the Neon God is still in print. Don't know if it'll still be on sale, but uh, if it is, we recommend that. Yeah, looks like they've got all the Amityville movies on here. Um, they yeah, got Putney Swope. Yeah, they have Putney Swope. Um, I would say that it is like you're saying. Like it does give you the vibe of going around like a blockbuster family video or something. Um, and specifically like the peaks that you would get of like the section behind the curtain too. Yeah. You get a little bit of that vibe too. Um, but like with like a, a level of curation that does not always exist in those. There's, there's a feeling that like people are still trying to curate this, but also it is extremely that vibe. Like this one's just called the suckling. Like, look at this. (laughs) When, what was your first experience as a kid of finding out they had porn at the video store? Um, I feel like I was very young, so I was the long- youngest of five. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I was just aware of this stuff as like a thing that exists. But um, for me, it was. I have no idea if the blockbuster in um our small town had. Porn. I don't know if the blockbuster did because like that might have been scandalous. I remember when I was little, my mom was the city attorney um, and <laughs> um, she didn't tell me about this until I was like a teenager. But I remember her like, you know, she her telling me a story about there was a huge city council meeting when um, a Cirillas wanted to open. Do you know Cirillas is a kind of yeah. Midwestern sex toy store, basically. Yeah. Um, they wanted to open a a location in our in town, and there was a huge city council meeting, or people from all over town were turning out to protest the Cirillas. Anyway, so I don't know if the Blockbuster had porn. I know the Family Video had porn, and I know because I went to the bathroom one time, and my dad was like, "You see that fucking curtain? You do not. You just walk right past, and you go to the bathroom." Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, why? What's the hurt curtain? I was like 10 years old or something. My dad's like, don't worry about it. <laughs> so, of course, I asked my friends, what's behind the curtain of the family video? <laughs> yeah. Um, the other one, I wanted to bring this up. Um, I'm pretty sure that this is UK only. Um, I haven't actually ordered from this, but I, I have some friends who have gotten stuff. Um, I think they especially gear towards like um, Asian action cinema. But uh, 88 films, uh, it's the number, you know, 8-8. Eight, eight. Um, they're also a good place if people, like, especially if people want to check out, like, you know, a bunch of wuja or, like, kung fu stuff. Like, you yeah. can find a ton there. And I hear that, like, a lot of these are very, like, they find a lot of stuff that you might be able to find for free on YouTube. But they're doing, like, good subtitles that are actually pulling out, like... Oh, here's like references that are being made, or like, yeah, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, I think I believe that it's UK only, which means that if you are not in a, you know, similar region, you'd probably need to have like a Blu ray for your computer, mm-hmm. like a Blu ray player, um, where you can then get past the region coding yeah. or like a region free Blu ray. Oh, shit, they got Dragons or, Forever. Yeah. Um, they have like Rikio. Um, man, story of Ricky. You ever think about that movie? I do. Yeah. Um, but like they have other ones here, like the tough ones that, you know, go outside of that. But I feel like 
I most often hear it coming up in terms of like they ha- just have some good versions of like you know the Chinese boxer and stuff. Um, so some of this stuff also exists on other places, but um, you know, worth checking out, and especially if you're in the UK. All a long enough timeline. Eventually, we're gonna do Riccio on this podcast. Yeah, it's not anywhere yeah, on like- my horizon, but I just feel like in the fullness of time, eventually we will do Riccio. They're they're top here. So if you go to like Blu-ray, they have sections. The the eighty eight Asia collection, eighty eight Vault, Slasher Classics, the Italian collection, and MGM Classics. I yeah. feel like that gives you a good sense of Yeah. And yeah, they put the Asia collection at the top. Yeah. Um which there's just a legendary weapons. Erotic in China. ghost story. Yeah. It's all I want in life. <laughs> um we should talk about the stuff we came here to talk about. Yeah. Oh, uh, stairs from the Mad Fox. I gave them a D plus, um, which is, there's basically some stairs that go. Oh yeah, I need to figure out that. Um, there's some stairs that that go up to like where the emperor is. Um, uh huh. And Sakaki goes up them, but not much happens. So I saw some stairs. D plus. Yeah. Um, anyway, what we're actually here to talk about, which is, um, do you want to run through the name of all of these? So we are here to talk about the uh, 13 short films. Um, I think she's put out one or two more since um, this, but the 13 short films that were available on the Criterion channel um, by uh, Akosua Adama Owosu. I meant yeah. to have us like double check the pronunciation on that before oh, we got so on air. Okay. Um anyway, 13 short films. I'll read out the names here real quick. Uh Ajibe Kete from 2005, T for 2 from 2006, Intermittent Delight from 2007, Buoyant from 2008. Uh, Subtitle on Michael Jackson and a Speedo is far beyond the horizon. Jordan First Michael all. Jordan. Yeah, different. <laughs> there is a Michael Jackson later, and yeah. I'm getting tired. <laughs> um, we gotta stop going for two hours before we... I know. We gotta rein it in. Anyway, Maybroni Ba um, from 2009, uh, Drexia from 2010, Split Ends, I Feel Wonderful from 2012. Uh, Kwaku Anansi. Yes, thank you, sorry. Um, Busnut from 2015, Reluctantly Queer from 2016, On Monday of Last Week from 2018, Mahogany 2 also from 2018, and then Pellerino, They Don't Really Care About Us from 2019. Um, yeah. It looked like when I was checking Letterboxd, she had a movie come out in 2020 and 2021, so... But yeah. we did not watch those, so... Um, broad thoughts. What did you make of these? Um, I, I guess overall, like... I feel like it was around... Drexia, where it was like, she was like, there's there's an intentionality developing where I was like getting into the films more. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the stuff before had interesting ideas, but I feel like in the way that when you're doing your first short films, like perhaps this is not that unsurprising. Fully, like I made some, I'm sure, terrible short films mm-hmm. in my day, um, and some of it is just like. You are shooting footage and you're just putting in stuff that you think is cool and interesting, but without like 
uh, and other people there to like talk to you about like we can cut down the scene or like you don't need to like keep lingering on these shots or like you don't have to like cut it this way. This like there are so many cuts and you can just like show a cool shot for a little bit and yeah. then move on. Um, so like. I I feel like some of our earlier stuff there was just like a certain roughness to it. Um also the other thing and I I was looking at her um Wikipedia page and like some of these films are held in the permanent collections of museums and I was watching it being like some of this feels like stuff yeah. that is made to be shown in a museum. Drexia in particular hit that note for me. Yeah. Where in a museum there's a placard that's like explaining some of the concept behind it. And that's also, I think, an important part. Like, I'm glad that we watched the interview with her where she talked about some of yeah, these concepts. Yeah. Um, I guess some of it you can pull out, but also, like, the nature of, like, art in a museum often involves, especially, like, modern art, like, contemporary art, involves also the placard being a thing that is, like, talking to you about the piece and, like, further prompting, like, thought about what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of this felt like, oh, there's, like, probably a placard that's meant to go with this. Right. It's probably something that's meant to like explain some of the concept behind this. And then you see it in a theater and you watch like maybe a minute of the 10 minutes, or maybe you're really entranced and you sit there and Mm. you watch it and then you realize that it's looping. Yeah. Um, I see this having made like, I had a piece that I made that was like meant as an installation where it was meant to be on a specific TV that is now sitting like right over there. Um, (laughs) And it was meant to be shown on that and sit on a pedestal. And so like some of the stuff too is like, and not like that piece, like, I don't know if it would make sense outside of that context Mm -hmm. because it was supposed to be on that. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, So yeah, especially some of our earlier stuff, like has that like museum feeling where, um, to some degree, like sitting down and just watching all these back to back on a sofa instead of watching like our normal fiction film didn't feel like the the best environment yeah. to watch it. I um so so just kind of going broadly, like Ajibakete is like her first thing, and that's like kind of separate, I think, from the rest of it in my mind. Yeah. Um there's you... a there's a lot just to like say a little bit about Ajabe Kete. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of just like, this is like footage in Ghana. Yes. We're just like showing you aspects of life in Ghana. And then there's a little bit around like the main character, as much as there is a character in this Ajube being like chastised by basically everyone about like how much of a failure she is. And that's, that's most of what the film is. So then T for two is a lot of, I would I would describe a lot of her style as like collage, at least especially in this early stuff, yeah. where she's sort of like mixing and matching. Like, here's this weird little prop I found. Here's this stock footage. Here's this stock audio. Here's this audio that we recorded that sounds like stock audio. Yeah, um, there's a lot of like audio processing that happens in most of her works. Yes, yes. Um, and T for two, I really liked. It's like pretty um, upfront about what it is. Um, it is like centrally concerned with like black hair and like 
whiteness as a beauty standard and it is two minutes long and it gets the point across um and it's really good i think yeah and if someone wants like a good representative like her early works yes t for two is the one i would point you to of like you can watch this two minutes you you like have a sense of some of the themes that she's interested in and she explores it more in other pieces but like yeah and so then i think the next three films intermittent delight um buoyant and may um explore a lot of the same themes and ideas not completely the same but like yeah. in the, in a similar headspace of like you know being raised to think that white is beautiful and black is not yeah and like i think a, a i liked intermittent delight a little bit because one of the things that it brought into was there are lots of depictions of like 60s fashion ad stuff uh-huh. yeah um and then intercut with like here are like African weavers making these textiles. Yes. Um, and I one it was tying just like the general reliance of like Western fashion often on materials and even in many cases like actual finished clothing made in like disenfranchised parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So I think it's partially referencing that as well as also specifically the way that like African prints, like Ghanaian prints would get brought in mm-hmm. um and like used by like white fashion designers right and yeah right um and so like because some of it is like oh here's like these ads these like weird commercials about it seems to be about a refrigerator but yeah. those commercials are fucking white or like whatever it is, is yeah wild. um but then it's like and now we're like putting the print over the refrigerator and stuff. right um in it's also the one that's the most collage Yes. Of any of these, I think. Um, so, yeah, like, I think inter- those three that come right after T for Two, yeah, I think are, like, in a very similar space. And those were really challenging movies for me. Not in the, like, oh, I was, like, pushed to think about new things. I was just, like, it... Because I think a lot of these are meant as, like, gallery pieces um, and things, like, it felt like... I was just sitting there and I was just getting all these like images and sounds that are supposed to like just kind of create associations that then I, the viewer, I'm supposed to just kind of like sit with and be like, wow, that's so deep. You know, it felt like it felt like a little um, didactic's not the word, but like, I don't know. It just felt like it made its point. It particularly May Brownie Ba, I felt like made its point and then had another 20 minutes going. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it had like different phases where it was kind of doing different things, but there, yeah, it was, um, it had a, uh, like a certain length to it that, um, I don't know. It was the one where like I, towards the end was dragging the most to you. Yeah. Um, and there's still interesting stuff that like, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Towards the end, like, I'm glad that we didn't just skip it, because then there's the story where yeah. the girl is talking um, in probably Twee um, about, like, going to a white school, basically. Yeah. Um, and, like, being fascinated with white girl's hair. Yeah. And how it's, like, her dolls. And yeah. then, like you know, finally having like a white friend who will let her play with her hair. And now I have like my own living white doll, which is just like interesting one in terms of like 
the doll as the beauty standard, right? But then also this like weird inversion of like, uh, like I'm I am making this white girl my doll. Yeah. Um, that felt interesting, but also again, there's like that was one of the longest ones we watched. Yeah. Um. So there are just parts where yeah. Especially when things would come back, like a thing that came up earlier, that was the part where I was the most like, okay, you're just like bringing this back because you want to like, if someone's only watching this for five minutes in a museum, they'll still get like bits and pieces. Yeah. Yeah. But then, and and we can still talk about these. I'm just yeah. getting out my very broadest takes. From Drexia onward, I really enjoyed Drexia and for the most part, everything after that, I, I get, at least got something out of or enjoyed um, some more than others, but... I think yeah. with I Drexia, say, she finds a voice that I found much more interesting um, yeah. than what comes before it. I think um, of the ones before Drexia, Buoyant kind of points to Drexia. It's the first one where she gets this like interest yeah. in water and like doing stuff around water. Um, but in Buoyant, it's just like it seems. I think it's her, yeah, wearing a Michael Jordan mask and like a speedo-y diving thing. Yeah. Um, and then jumping into a pool that has, like, a bunch of um, life preservers, like, the, yeah. those rings that are wrapped with, like, artificial black and blonde hair. Yeah. Um, and that was the one that most felt like a performance art piece that got put to Yeah, for sure. Video. <laughs> that, yeah, um, that one just felt like... That one felt like... I had an idea, and then someone, a professor, an employer, a, a curator, someone was like, oh, make that idea 15 minutes longer so I can do something with it. Like, I can yeah. present it somewhere. I mean, it wasn't even 15 minutes, but... Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it was the one that was the most, like, there is an image here, and yeah. then we just, like, see it for a little while. Yeah. Um, it was the most of, like, this also could have... I, there are things that you can't have in a photograph, but a lot of it was like, there could be a photograph of this that would also convey yeah. what this film is. Um, the music, though, was like one of the things, but then it also gets reused with Drexia, some of that yeah. music, I think. Yeah. I think those are the ones, both of them the, use that Both same. use that, uh, the God's Gonna Trouble the Water hymn. Yeah. Um. Um, but yeah, Drexia was uh, more focused, I think, on just like that that water theme and mm. specifically referencing like a, um, well, like, I guess like a folklore, like myth that the, the women who went overboard on the slave ships yes, didn't die in the water, but instead like had their babies down there and also made like this mythic city of Drexia. I was very glad that we watched, um, the interview with her that the criterion channel presented because, um, I thought all of that part of it was interesting. None of that is in the movie. I would not have yeah. known that without sort of her prefacing Drexia is me exploring this. Cause most of Drexia is just here is a like derelict d -d decrepit um, pool. And yeah. in the distance you can see like some young boys playing soccer or like there's a fire out there somewhere. Yeah. You know, but mostly we were just lengthy, lingering shots of this pool that like it, it is it is sometimes so hard to like say like why that one works for me. Just staring at a pool for a while works for me 
And this other one doesn't work for me, but I it just does. One of the, the big ones is this is the first one where I think she wasn't cutting constantly. Yes. yes. And it was actually kind of nice to just like look at an image for a while and then we get another image and we just look at it for a while. Yeah. And also because of that, there's like a greater intentionality around how the images I think were being framed uh-huh. and how the how they were being cut between images um, in a way that when you're doing this, and again, I'm speaking from experience, sometimes you just go out and shoot a bunch of footage because you do experimental films like this. This is the shit that I did too. Mm. Different subject matter, but like similar style, honestly. Mm. Um, and then you just have to edit it together into something. And especially when early on, sometimes you're like, well, if I just put in more cuts, it shows that I did more work and I'm going to get a better grade or whatever. Right. right. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, there's like a certain weirdness, I think, especially around like when you're in art school or just like getting out of art school. Yeah. Of like how you have to think about things where you like have to show how much work you did because that's part of the class. Yeah. And actually sometimes it'd be better if you just like had some more intentionality and, and like, just did the the important work and then didn't do a bunch of extraneous work that's actually not useful. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and yeah, Drexio is the one where I felt like there was intentionality with the shots and with the editing in a way that felt far more like, okay, like I feel like you're like getting the rhythm and you're getting a sense of like what's going to be your style moving forward. And, and then going from there into split ends, I feel wonderful that, you know, you can guess dear listener from the from the title that explores pretty similar stuff to her previous things we talked about of like thinking about black hair and and these sorts of things but i think like the style works a little better for me it still has that sort of like collage like i'm just throwing stuff together here's some images here's some sounds it's like more tightly focused yeah it's like here are the specific images and the specific sounds that i'm using and i'm just going to kind of yes focus in on these and it it is shorter it feels like it is like this is what we're doing you know yeah and i i that one worked for me more or less you know um and Um, then Quaclanansi was the... That's the spider one. It was very yeah. scary for me. Yeah. It did have spiders. <laughs> um, it was her first attempt at a narrative. I would say two of these are particularly narrative, and um, I like this one more than the other one. Yeah, I thought this was too. I yeah. thought this was better. Um, basic plot is... Uh, so, Anansi is a like, spider trickster, uh, like god or you know folklore. Yeah. Um in multiple parts of Africa Mm -hmm. and uh, is not really like widely talked about or thought about in Ghana anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, you know, has historical roots there as well. Um, And the the plot of it is like kind of based on her own life of going to Ghana for her father's funeral. Right. Um, Because, so she was born in the U.S., but like both of her parents are from Ghana. And all her siblings were born in Ghana too. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, going back for like, you know, he was buried in Ghana then. Um, But then the, the plot of it being like this girl who's going for the funeral, but the person being buried is like the spider trickster god Mm. anansi 
Uh, but that is like the father of the main character in it. Yeah. Um, and so there's like scenes of the funeral and then her going through the woods trying to find her father to talk to her father. Yeah. Um, and like talking to the ants and things. And so like, yeah, she talks to actual ants and then she like talks to a, a guy reading who I think is kind of supposed to be the ants. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she goes and like finds a spider mm-hmm. and then it's a little scary because it was you just a spider. spider on the screen. Yeah. Um, if you have arachnophobia, it's a little scary, but it's, this is not like a horror movie. No, no. Um, I just thought it was going to be a horror movie because I thought there was going to be a, like, oh, suddenly a spider. There was never suddenly a spider. Yeah. Or, um, or there was, but the um, the other thing was that the interview with her, because it's just showing footage from the movie, prepped me for, oh, there's going to be a spider in this shot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, anyway, but yeah, and then she goes and talks to her father, and yeah, um, he talks about like how he put a bunch of w- wisdom in the gourd so that anyone who comes to talk to him can like access that wisdom, and then yeah. you see a one of the gourds floating down a river, and then there's just like a bunch of them. Yeah, um, so it's still like a little bit abstract, but like there were characters, and the the abstraction worked for me. Of like, it felt like. This character is grieving, um, and, you know, speaking from my own experiences with grief, you're not always on the most, like, logical sort of, like, you know, grounded in reality train of thought when you're trying to process, like, losing a loved one, you know? Um, And so when she sort of, like, gets into this, like, character who is her dad, but is obviously not her dad because her dad is dead and is a sort of representation of her dad. That all really worked for me. You know, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that I enjoyed that one a lot. Yeah. Also, I, that one, I think benefited a lot there in the sort of like quote unquote plot. There's a lot of abstraction. The, the, camera like the images are much more grounded in reality than anything we had seen to this point um which is much more like just throwing stuff up on the screen and just seeing if you can get a reaction almost it felt like sometimes you know this is like much more like we're going to follow this character she's going to go from here to here you know Um, yeah um images are sometimes brought in but like in ways where it's like, oh, now she's going through the woods, and now we're like looking up in the trees, or there's like, you know, spider webs in the trees, or whatever. Oh. Um, there's like things had like more of a a narrative or like linear coherence, yeah. even as like stuff got kind of weird and dreamlike. Um, so, um, then Busnut. This is like the. <laughs> Bus nut is just a funny thing to yeah, say. Yeah, I'm sorry. It is. Um, well, and I, this is like the funniest of all of these. Um, I, I've not seen the 1980 like special about bus safety or whatever that this is apparently referencing. Um, but it seems like it's this is one where she didn't really talk about it in the interview either. Yeah. But it seems like it's archival footage from like that safety special from the eighties. Um, then like there's some like archival recording of Rosa Parks mm-hmm. um, talking about you know the whole not going to the back of the bus thing. Mm-hmm. And then there is um, 
like a recreation of some of the images from the movie Bus Nut, but then like situating it a little bit more in this like Rosa Parks thing um, and this like recreation of history thing or something. So, but also it was just, it's funny because it starts with a little girl who wakes up and puts on a shirt that says Bus Nut mm-hmm. <laughs> and then. Uh, like recreation older woman wakes up and puts on a shirt that says bus nut and that's when the movie starts yeah this is the one that I felt like I had I felt like I had no reaction positive or negative or anything yeah. I was just like this movie just kind of like washed over me a little bit yeah Um, it also felt the most like distinctly different than anything else yeah there are parts where i can still see issues like pulling from various you know it is this like here's archival here's stuff that i'm shooting myself um you know that kind of thing here i'm like juxtaposing images but none of it gets to like quite the extensive collage that some of the other stuff hits um but then also it's like the themes that it's bringing up here seem not quite as much. I mean, she's like moving out of at this point, just a lot of the stuff that's about like black hair and water. Mm. Um, but also like, it still feels slightly out of like place from some of the other stuff that she explores. Uh huh. So, um, like, I feel like this is the, the one thing that we watched that really has like, I feel like all of her other stuff to some degree or other is thinking about like, White America, Black America, and Africa. Mm. And this one, I there's no, like, Africa in this yeah. one. In a way that is just notable because, like, everything else is kind of doing that. Even her film about Brazil is still yes. kind of thinking about these, like, three, yes. you know. Yes. She talks in the, the interview, and this is, like, you know, Wikipedia talks about this as well, too. I think this is, like, a main way that she frames her work is thinking about, like, her different selves and having these, like, three things. And mm-hmm. then, um, anyway. Hey. Going from that, like, I think Reluctantly Queer is a movie that, like, is deeply engaged with that, you yeah. know? Um, and specifically, like, she has these sort of three awarenesses um, of, you know, white America, black America... Um, and, um, Africa and reluctantly queer is her collaborating with someone else who, you know, I believe she's, she says that his story is that like, he's from Ghana, um, and came to the U S and he's thinking so much about like, you know, I'm from Ghana. I have like that experience with my life. I come to white America and I feel constantly surveilled, but I also feel free to be gay now. And like, yeah. that's like the three sort of worlds that he's moving to between. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, this was one of the, so this is the one that I watched and I was like, Oh, I just want to like watch all of her short films. I guess we'll, we'll do this in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still think it's my favorite and it, yeah, not I'm... just because I'm gay and can identify in that way, but also because I think it just like, it has a strong, um, it is like a strong sense of like, here's how I'm exploring these topics. And I also think that the, this one feels so much more collaborative than some of the other ones. Have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so like, and I think that collaboration is helping because we're getting his words, but then how she's like handling the images around them and things and how she's like cutting and doing this. 
Um, and so I think like that one, I think that that collaboration just like helps it be stronger because it, um, mm. ha- having done a bunch of solo work, sometimes when you collaborate with someone who you like feel a certain creative kinship with, uh, your work is a lot better. Yeah. I can say this as a person who's doing creative stuff. Yeah. Um, it's part of the reason why I like doing podcasts is because I like it a lot better than <laughs> writing a bunch of just my thoughts into a word document and then publishing it on the internet. Um, but yeah, I think it, it just, yeah, it, it, it felt through so much of her work. Um, it felt like, and I think she's playing with this that like, you know, sound and image are like at odds with each other or, or like juxtaposed in such a way that there is some sort of like contradiction that needs to be resolved in the viewer of like, you're seeing this, um, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing like the hair, the, the care that goes into taking care of black hair and you're hearing all this stuff about like white beauty, you know? And there's like the, the, Sight and sound are, like, at odds with each other through so much of her work. In this, it felt like they're together in a, in a much more, like... Yeah. In a way that just, like, sat better with me, was more engaging to me a lot of yeah. the time. And then a lot of that, like, tension and ambiguity comes from, like, the actual discussion of this, which is, just, or, like, the actual topic of this, which is the, like, the state of, like, Ghana is my unhappy home... Uh-huh. Because when I go there, I can't bring the self of me that is this yes. like gay self. When I am in America, in some ways I feel happier, and yet it is also my unhappy home because here I am like surveilled as a black body in a yeah. white country. Yeah. Um. And so, like, no matter where I am, like, both of these are like at once my home and not my home, and that being like just what the text of it is allows, I think for the images and the sounds to like come together to express that rather than it being expressed by like the juxtaposition of the images. Yeah. Yeah. Um, both of the, like both the image and the sound can explore that at the same time in a way that I, I think added strength. Cause there's also like, you're hearing this and he's like, we get a lot of intimate shots of like, him and of you know bills like him and his lover but there's also in those shots this intentional juxtaposition of like you know it's shot in black and white when he's like in the shower lathering up we are getting like the white streaks of the soap lather on his black skin yeah when he's with his lover it is like it's a white man and so it's like a black man and a white man so there's like this intentional mm. playing with color that's happening yeah um and with like his skin that's like tying into what he's talking about as well yeah um well and the the, the person he's with seems like very carefree while he's like very preoccupied with something looking out the window he's you know, it's sort of implied that he's, like, thinking about the contents of this letter. Either he's going to write it or he has written it, you know. Um, yeah. And, like, you know, the ways that, like, you know, white people can be carefree or afforded um, the ability to be carefree, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, um, then on Monday of last week, this was the other, like, narrative film. This one was okay. Um, yeah. This one, I, there are parts, one, this reminded me a little bit of, um, not Love Brood in an African Pop, but Heritage Africa. Um, and I, like, 
sometimes I get this feeling watching stuff where part of it is like, here are the like wild shit that white people will say to black people Mm. and they put it in a film, but a white actor has to do it. And they are always doing it in this way of like, ha ha. I'm, I'm like, I'm in the know. I'm the good one. I'm in the know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which was, I extremely felt with every white actor in Heritage Africa, like every single line they delivered being Uh like, I know this is some wild shit to say. Uh, I know that this is bad, but I'm just playing a character. And I extremely got the vibe from the white guy in this. The white guy on the, the white guy in this movie, every line delivery has the same tenor as i would have voted for obama a third time yeah yeah (laughs) um so yeah that was and like some of this too is like especially if you just don't have super professional actors i think there's probably just an extreme awkwardness Mm. for like playing this role um but yeah it's basically it's a nigerian woman Mm -hmm. um who uh, real quick, I don't know if she was actually Nigerian or if the white guy was like Nigeria and just named a like random think, African country. Yeah, I think I was looking at like a description of the the um the the um uh Chimanda uh, Adiche, the writer who like the novelist who wrote the short story that this is based on, um, is Nigerian, and so maybe yeah. this character is actually Nigerian. I. Just the way something from the way the actor did it made me think that she w- was not from Nigeria and the white guy just says Nigeria and then she just never has the heart to correct him. <laughs> According to the synopsis. Well, anyway, um, but yeah, and so she becomes the nanny Um He's very condescending to her about like how she can speak English, and she's like, "I have a master's degree." Um, but yeah, it was like weirdly incomplete, um, and not in a way that like you know intrigued me or something. It just kind of felt like the story ended, um, or there's just like some some themes being brought up, but none of them like get resolved or fully explored mm-hmm. um, because then she meets with um, the white guy's wife who's a like, you know, black American woman Mm -hmm. and is doing some like, you know, kind of cringy, like, Oh, I've never been to like Africa, the motherland, but like, it inspires me. Yeah. You know, I went to Ghana once and you you know, like, (laughs) like, sort of objectifying like black bodies and like, you know, Oh, I've painted all these people and maybe this person is actually like expressing like genuine interest or care, but is also like making a quick buck off of, you yeah. know, like painting these people. Um, and I feel like the, the big thing that happens is that like that interaction happens and it seems extremely awkward of like, man this is this is like bad vibes but then um the nanny like seems to actually be interested but maybe she's just gay for yeah there's like a the the wife yeah there's like a sexually charged element that like never goes anywhere (laughs) yeah i was like is this gonna get gay and then it just you know the the wife like 
sees the French teacher and is like, oh, your eyes are so, like, violet. Yeah. Have you ever been a model for... Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, there's also um, a scene where the main character is, like, imagining herself in a wedding dress with this, like, um, like, white guy that she's working for. And it's not... And, like, also... Um, his wife is there like she's sort of imagining herself like as part of this home in a in a way and then like comes back into reality and like she's just the help in a lot of ways yeah you know um Um, so yeah there there are like interesting things being brought up but i some of it was just like a these are non-professional actors and some of it can maybe get sold more but also i feel like Things are just incomplete in a way that um, I don't need everything to be like wrapped up and resolved, but it felt like, oh, I see like themes that you're starting to bring up and then it just ended. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wait, you, you could have explored those a little bit more. First. Yeah. <laughs> this one actually could have been longer. Yeah. Um, Mahogany 2 felt like a return made, to some of the older form. Made no impression on me. I forgot about that um, one. Yeah, that was like... It has some stairs. There's like a three minute movie. I don't recall anything that, that might have had the best stairs. Maybe of any of the ones that I feel like that had the best stairs. Okay. I think the 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 image for this is going to be those stairs. I I don't mean to sound dismissive. I just forgot this one. I don't yeah. know what this. I remember it was very yellow, and it's just like there's a little bit around like black hair again, mm-hmm. and it was a lot of also like the woman walking around like kind of a A mall mall space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like there were stairs in the mall. So yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Pellerino, they don't really care about us. Oh no, wait, Pellerino, I think is the one that stairs for the cover is going to be. There's some good stairs in Pellerino. I liked this one. Yeah. Um, this one is, um, uh, she goes to, Owosu goes to, um, a a neighborhood of Rio called Pellerino. She's kind of, a lot of this is shot on super eight. I don't know that we've mentioned that, but a lot, a lot of these movies, not everything, but a lot of these are shot on super eight. So she's especially the more collage it is, the more likely it is that the stuff that she shot is on like super eight. Yeah. Or I think, um, Ajuvi is like DV because there's some weird shearing that I associate with like early DV. Yeah. Like DV tapes, which is what I was also shooting. At. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very familiar with that like shearing that happens if you like quickly pan. Um, so Pellerino um, is she's walking around the neighborhood shooting things on Super 8. Um, this is another one where I was really glad that we had the introduction because she talked about like, um, you know, Part of her thought was um, about, like, you know, just thinking about, you know, Brazil's, like, place in the transatlantic transatlantic slave trade. Um, you know, so many, like, people were brought in there from, you know, Africa. Um, and, like, this specific, like, spot had some historical event tied to it that I don't recall now. Yeah. Um, and she... Like, in the film, there is, um, someone reads a letter from W.E.B. Du Bois, um, asking about, like, the state of, like, black folks in, um, 
Brazil and he's like talking about like, you know, so many um, black tourists who just want to come see Rio have not been allowed to come see it because of like racist um, like laws in the tourism. And he's like asking questions about this and they're reading the letter. And the other like sort of thing that is happening in, in this neighborhood is that um, some like maybe in like the last 10 years, I don't, I, who Michael died a while ago now. Yeah. And this movie but is, comes so, out in 2019. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so is the, I think Spike Lee directed yes. music video to they don't really care about us. Yes. Was shot here. And so there's a lot of like images of Michael posters and, and paintings and, and like st- things that are hanging from rafters. Like yeah. Michael is huge here. Yeah, and she said, like, also, like, as she was going around, she was just hearing the song being played, like, multiple yeah. times, different yeah. places. Um. Um, I was you, just quick. Yeah. Sorry, anyway. I didn't know if you had something uh, that you wanted to pull out from that. No, I I had not. Uh, I pulled up the, the article here, seeing if I could remember the, the historic event, but, um, anyway, um... Yeah, and so one thing that I liked about this is that it's one where the interview helped me think about it a little bit more and, like, be prepared for what are these, like, what's going to be happening in this film. Mm -hmm. But also I feel like compared to some of the other ones, a lot more of what it was about was also present in it. Yes. Um, Like, especially compared to Drixia, which, again, I really liked, but, like, if I didn't have a that interview or if I didn't have a like card next to it, I don't know how much I would fully pull out from that. They don't care about us was in 96. 96. I, th- I thought this was like one of his later songs. This is wow. Yeah. Um, that makes sense though, because a lot of the images of him mm-hmm. from that are like, yeah, that era, Michael Jackson. Images. Yeah. The, the, this is like, when I think Michael Jackson, this is the Michael Jackson I think of because this is the Michael Jackson of when I was a kid. You know, yeah. and me first knowing about Michael through the the trials, not through his music. You know. Yeah. Um. Um. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so like you know, we get the reading the letters as well as like reading the boy's letter as well as the response. We get all the images of Michael, we get the song at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, we also get people saying they don't really care about us. Um, mm. So like, I feel like more of it was like in it in a way where um, I could have watched this without that interview and, and still yeah. gotten the stuff that it was playing with, but also that interview like helped further contextualize it. So It's really interesting, I think, and weird to see something that comes out in 2019 and sort of like thinks about Michael's legacy as a black person in a very uncomplicated way. I think like, I think this movie doesn't, I think this film and you know, it's a 20 minute film is not really concerned with like the, the, um, the problems around Michael and the, the, the controversy and the, the, you know, um, just sort of deals with him as a 
inspirational figure or or a like um a black icon yeah like an icon that's the word i was looking for thank you because like and this is like you know immediately after his death and for a few years after this was the way that we all when he was alive no one talked about him like this and then he died and he was like deified and then the the pendulum is swung back the other way now where i think a lot of people like when you talk about michael have to talk about everything else yeah um and, and can't talk about like the music can't talk about like the king of pop you know um yeah. it it's really interesting to see like you know people just like what am i trying to say just like it is interesting to see in 2019 um michael still as an icon i have my own you know like uh, complicated feelings about michael like yeah. I, I i have friends who can't listen to his music anymore because of the stuff and like I can still listen to Michael Jackson songs because I think they're the greatest pop songs ever <laughs> ever written or performed, but I, yeah. like, I understand, you know? Yeah. I feel like, not that this, like, fully changes it to you, but, like, I also, just being older, have, like, a longer period of time where it was just, like, no, like, Michael Jackson's just the king of pop. Yeah. Um, and not that, like, the accusation accusations didn't happen when I was five mm. still, but, mm. like... I was five. I'd the, the, I had already heard Michael Jackson music. My my dad, I think I've mentioned this before, basically had a bunch of doo wop and then like Michael Jackson and yeah. um Billy Joel. There's a little bit of Bill, Billy Joel in there. There's like a smattering yeah. of other stuff, but like there are multiple Michael Jackson record or like albums that I remember as VHS tapes in our car that is early as I can remember I was listening to. Yeah. Well, um, and I remember, it feels like, it feels like in 93, when stuff, like, when accusations are first made, like, it's, it damaged his reputation, but it felt like the, um, it felt like the trial in 2005, which is, like, when I first became aware of him, yeah. you know, as a... Well, and also the... Living with Michael Jackson, the documentary in 2003. I feel like it was yeah. really the start of it. Yeah, I felt like that was just like, you, for a lot of my childhood until he passed, like, when you talked about Michael Jackson, that's what you talked about. You did not talk about Thriller being the greatest song ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but like, 2003, yeah. I was 15. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I feel like I had a longer period of like, just uncomplicated love of Michael Jackson mm-hmm. and then it got complicated, but then it's still just like, sometimes I still put on Thriller because it's one of the best pop albums well, ever fucking made. It, it, one, there's that and two, like, you know, um, it, you know, Michael was a black icon, <laughs> yeah. you know? And like, I don't think that like, like, I don't know. I think the work that he did as the most famous person in the universe like as a black person um, who like put that front center in a lot of his work, like I don't think that can be understated. Like, I think that is important and I think it is a complicated legacy and it's just super weird and interesting and thorny. I think to like watch a movie that's like, just thinks about that side of him. 
uh, no space or consideration for anything else. Yeah. You know? Um, And I think some of it is that, like, I think this film is thinking about, like, both Michael Jackson and W.E.B. Du Bois as just, like, black icons. Mm. Very different black icons, but Mm. black icons, and both of them being, like, tied to the space Mm -hmm. um, in, like, very different ways. Um, One of them being Du Bois being, like, hey, I, like, went to Brazil and shit was weird Mm -hmm. for me there. And then Michael Jackson goes and makes a music video and is plastered all over the place. Yeah. And there's, like, a... There's a interesting contradiction in that. Yeah. Um, and that also doesn't like really, sh- it's not, I think part of what this film is interested in is showing those icons and how that like that changed, but then also how that, that change does not really reflect like a material, a significant material change for like black people living in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, by then having, them being like, they don't really care about us. And just having a bunch of people say that. Yeah. um, In Portuguese. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, I enjoyed it. It was not my favorite of these ones, but it was good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, I like basically don't really remember any of these stairs. Um, we did though. So the last three films did have stairs. So just F for everything else? Yeah, sure. Um, do we have any thoughts about the other? Um, I remember remarking in the moment, like, oh, there's some stairs. But, like, on Monday of last week, does feature stairs? They're barely there. Monday They're of last week gets In the background of the house, and then there's also a part where she goes up, um, like, stairs in, like, a subway. Yeah, I would say a D or a D minus. We'll do a D because two showed up and this is short. Yeah, film. mahogany two. We can give it some more points, but I nobody still don't really feel... goes up it, but it is very ornate. Yeah, I might do a D plus. Okay, I it still doesn't really get brought in. Yeah, um, and then honestly, I'm feeling the same for Pellerino. I mean, it, it was my favorite shot of stairs, but like, just stairs are not a, a feature of this person's work. Yeah, of, of, of Alosu's work. Um, she did bring it in at the end, though. Yeah. So. Um, do we have emails? We have one from Jo, who says, Hello, Connor and Connor. Which would be the best and worst movie covered by stairwells to be adapted into a board game? I read this earlier. Best would definitely be Police Story. Yeah. Um, some other ones that would be good. One would be Emma, which would be like, uh, <laughs> like Clue or, um, that like Sherlock Holmes one that people love. Oh yeah. But instead of you explaining the like murder mystery that you're trying to solve throughout it, all of you are trying to do competing schemes and whoever like pulls off their scheme first, then gets to explain this, the scheme at the end. That's That good. could be fun. Um, click on 2021 tab for me, please. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Wings of Desire would be a pretty bad board game. I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, the other one that we are saying that I think just exists is I'm sure there are multiple like story games that are the hunger. 
Yeah. There was one, I don't remember the name of it. They did it on like Live at the Table recently um, where Janine played it and like Allie was basically there just to like be a person that Janine could talk to because it was a one player journaling game. Um, but it was about being a vampire and like the people who like die in your life and you like have to keep moving on because you're immortal and they're mortal. That's just the hunger. <laughs> that game exists. The hunger has games. <laughs> uh, they're just all like story game stuff, not board games. Tokyo Drifter. Um, one, like there are a million like tabletop RPGs that are like crime stories like this, like fiasco yeah. or whatever. But the, uh, the main reason I'm mentioning Tokyo Drifter is that I just remembered that, like, partway through that movie, the protagonist of a different movie wanders in and helps him out and then wanders back out into his own yeah. movie. And that feels like a, like, <laughs> Tokyo Drifter contains within it the setup for a board game where each person is kind of playing their own, like, Yakuza plot that intersects with each other's in ver- in various different ways. Yeah. Like, oh, I drew a card where my boss betrayed me and I have to skip town. And you drew a card where you had to skip town because the heat was on. And so now we're both <laughs> in the same place. <laughs> um, Evangelion, Shingeki Joban, Joe and Ha. We make terrible board games. Nobody needs a uh, <laughs> Evangelion board game that's terrible. <laughs> if you want an Ava board game, fuck you. <laughs> house um, board game. House board game would be good as hell. <laughs> house board <laughs> game. House board game. Yeah. Um, house board game. Yeah, house board game. House board game. game. House board game. Um, suicide squir- Suicide Circle board game. That's dark. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you throw dark, but you're in luck. So does ornate stairwells. It, um, it's a it's one of those like detective solving a mystery style games. But mm-hmm. the uh, end of the game is you can never solve the mystery mm-hmm. uh, because there's like no way to like solve as a detective why people kill themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, policing is not the solution to that. Mm-hmm. That's the point. At the end of every game is like you all lose. <laughs> Tokyo Godfathers is a board game that exists. I, I'm sure of it. Yeah. Uh, Tokyo Godfathers is a game of fiasco that someone has played. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I I feel like... Let Me Die Woman, worst board game. Yeah, that's nothing. Yeah. Nothing there. Um. Anyway... Uh, I next not, time I have not yet put in, but I will put in our our update to the schedule. So yeah, have a minor update. I can actually just do this while you say next time. Blah blah blah. Next time we are watching Boys in the Hood, a movie I've never seen. Um, don't yeah yeah yeah. You're gonna mess it up a little bit, but it's gonna be fine. Oh. Um. Anyway. Um. Yeah. Next time we're watching John Singleton. Um. Boys in the Hood. Never seen that movie. I'm excited. Um, I got nothing else to say beyond that. Um, Stupid. (laughs) That was just me complaining about how this copied in. Yeah. Um, uh, Oh, you do that. So never mind. No, you do that right. Never mind. Ignore me. Um...
Yeah. I'm getting tired. I don't have much. Yeah. We gotta shorten up segment one somehow. Yeah. We gotta just pick one movie each and... Maybe. Maybe. Just, like, quickly rate some stairwells and... Yeah. Yeah. But then how would we have done? Because I wouldn't... I don't know how we would have done last week because I could not have possibly done last week's episode without not without talking about Deep Cover because Deep Cover is genuinely one of the best movies yeah. I've ever seen in my fucking life. Anyway, that's the problem for another day. Uh, Nia, where can people find you? You can find me at Fox Mom Nia. That's F-O-X-M-O-M-N-I-A. I don't normally say it. You can also find me at media underscore pile. That's M-E-D-I-A-M-H underscore P-I-L-E. You can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find all my podcasts at exportodd.io. Um, that takes you to the Patreon page. And on the Patreon page, we have links to all the free feeds. Or you can give us a dollar a month, get access to this podcast early, get access to Gotham City Limits early, get access to Ars Arcanum early. And more. Um, and uh, 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 if you give us $5 a month, you get access to Pop Town Funk. What's Pop Town Funk, you ask? It is a podcast where my wife and I roll random Funko Pops and have to watch movies or read comics or play video games that inspired those Funko Pops. If you want a little taste of it, go to exportaudio slash exportaudio and listen to our most recent episode. Um, which is about the critical role show Vox Machina. That is not an episode of Pop Town Funk, but it may as well be. Um, yeah. I think that's everything. Um, go listen to Ghost Divers. <clears throat> we just wrapped up the Utena season. Uh, that was a really good season. I think it's been our best so far. Um, and we're going into a bunch of Ghosts in the Shell soon. So if you only listen to this feed, you are going to be forced to... Well, I guess you could stop listening once it gets to the Ghost Divers part. But yeah. we're doing a crossover event where... Um, those are going to be some long-ass episodes because it's just two podcast episodes put together. And they're my <laughs> podcast episodes, so they're going to be fucking long. <laughs> Bye. At least like a half hour of this is going to... I forget how long you recorded. Before. Like 15 minutes. Not that much. It was like 15 minutes. 20 tops. Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real. Thank you.
white translucent black capes back on the rack. Bella Lugos is dead, the bats have left the bell tower, the victims have been bled, red velvet lines, the black box. Bella Lugos is dead.
Yeah, you do. Well, how do you live like this? Um, I record something and then I close a bunch of tabs because I start recording and I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, let's do... You know what else we haven't done? What? So that we were going to figure out when M's going to be on and shit. That's fine. We didn't need to figure that out tonight. I thought we were going to figure that out tonight. Are we going to do episode 37? That's pretty funny. It's pretty funny to get on M on for 37. In a row? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Plug in 37 for cure. Plug in cure for 37. And then... Okay, I'm going to do this. I can't. I still can't believe this is on fucking Criterion, of all places. Like, I kind of see it if they're gonna have one of these films. Mm-hmm. Like, here makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's like not as like intensely disgusting as some of these films are. You know. I'm gonna shoot. Uh, shoot them a text. Is that yeah. now? Is that set to record March eighth or release March eighth? That's when it would release. Okay. So it would be probably the Friday before, but who knows. Yeah. But it would be the first week of March. We'll be, flex- we'll be flexible for him. Yeah, first week of March. <clears throat> we can be flexible around yeah. that. But... The thing is, we've picked the one that's just like a good film. Yeah. Which is kind of why I'm... I mean, so March is when... I picked the one cure. that had detectives because I like detectives. And M also likes detectives. So. I wasn't thinking about them. But see, like, August we're doing Dead or Alive and Dead or Alive 2 Birds. The thing is, I want M to have to watch Dead or Alive and then record a podcast about it. You can take that up with them. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying it's a... It is a movie that features a scene where two women wrestle in an inflatable pool full of poop. <laughs> You've told me about this many times. You're so excited for it. And it's not, like, a great movie. Mm-hmm. There are parts of it that I like. Not really the You're wrestling full, and shit one. You're full on, like, in podcast performance mode, and we haven't started the podcast, so I'm, like, not meeting your energy level where you're at yet. But... Whereas Birds is a masterpiece. Uh huh. Yeah. I hate that movie. You've not seen that movie. I've seen The Birds plenty. Oh, The the Birds. (laughs) Fuck that movie. Dead or Alive 2 Birds. Okay. I forgot there was a subtitle Birds to it. I just. The Alfred Hitchcock film, The Birds, is awful. Yeah. Terrible movie. We got some real clunkers. And some bangers. Yeah. Rear window. Man, rear window. Anyway, we'll figure out Shakespeare a month later, but yeah. one of these last two ones is gonna be um Do we wanna just like you pick two and I pick two like our normal? Yeah, but so I know one of mine is gonna be the bad sleep well, the other one I kinda of wanna know what you're doing before I pick one. I'm tentatively leaning toward Olivier and Almereda. Um, but I don't feel that strongly about it. Yeah. Uh, Olivier might be one that I watch on my own because 
Olivier is a very like straightforward uh, version, and that might be like, oh, you know, what? I'm just gonna go watch Olivier, and I'm gonna just bring um, two weird ones. This is part of why I was like, I do want your what you're doing first because, like, a straight adaptation is fine, but I think we can only do one. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't want to do a yeah. bunch that are straight adaptations. I want to do one that's, like, fairly faithful, and then we get into, like, weirder territory. Yeah. Um, if we if we did Olivier, I would want it to be the first week of the month, and then from there, get a little get a little. Yeah, kookier. we would start with Olivier, for sure. Yeah. Um, what are some of our other options? Oh, the, the Russian one seems kind of interesting. Mm. That one could be fun to watch. Yeah. I don't really like Franco Zeffirelli movies, so. Yeah. Oh, and that's Mel um, Gibson, too. I forgot there's a Mel Gibson Hamlet. How could I forget yeah. there's a Mel Gibson Hamlet? We're not watching um, the Kenneth Branagh one. Yeah. I like that movie. The, We're not watching it. The Almereta one, I'm interested in seeing. Yeah, that's been on my list forever. So, um, um, I'm definitely, like... If you, like, felt strongly about two other ones, then I would just do my other one for the Almereda. When we were talking about this last time, and I had, like, a list in front of me, I had two that I was like, oh, I really want to do those, but I don't recall um, what they were. Um, huh. Tom Stoppard directed a 1990 film version of his own play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, with Gary Oldman and Tim Roth in the title roles. Um, that's so the ones that I put. So there's the Hamlet, the Elmerita Hamlet. Hamlet does business, which is the Aki Kurosaki one. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bad Sleep Well, which I'm for sure doing. Um, Hater is the the Bollywood one that's like kind of mm-hmm. an action movie, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of Silence is the German one, and then Johnny Hamlet is the spaghetti western one. I'm not super big, and then there's the Russian one. I love spaghetti westerns um, a lot, so that's definitely German one, maybe. Um, Bollywood one, I lean no, because I've never seen a Bollywood movie, and I don't want to, like... I, I would like to do Bollywood on yeah. this podcast. I don't want to do do it as a gimmick, and I don't want to like what I what I would like. There are I, other Indian films I would rather watch first than a Hamlet adaptation for Hamlet Month. Yeah, that's the thing, and I don't want to. I would maybe you know want to watch if we did a Bollywood movie in like June. I would want to spend May watching one or two or three other Bollywood movies just so that I have like some sort of grounding and I don't come in saying like stupid shit and insensitive yeah. more, more importantly insensitive shit. Cause I just, I don't know anything about Bollywood and I don't want to like, you know, just come in here and be like, you know, saying, st- saying stuff that sounds dumb because I've never seen one of these before. Yeah. So. Um, I feel like Stranger Brew is a stupid one to do. <laughs> um, Spaghetti Western one could be fun. The thing is, like... Okay. I was clicking on... Um, 
I was clicking on this uh, director who did the Spaghetti Western Hamlet. Uh, I assume all this is going after the credits, so I'm going to explain for the listeners. Uh, I was trying to see there's two types of Spaghetti Western directors. There's guy who did like 10 of these and he's a legend or guy who did like 80 of these and is kind of di- kind of a diamond in the rough, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, it seems like this is one of the latter. It seems like Italian directors, uh, <clears throat> even more than like mid-century American directors, seem to just do that thing where they directed two movies a year, every year, until they dropped dead of lung cancer. Yeah. Um, the thing is, I know about Johnny Hamlet. So the Johnny Hamlet is like what it came over as you know mm-hmm. initially but like the the title here is that dirty story in the west huh. um um if you go like, i feel like this poster people have seen and then people will be like did you know that that poster is for a hamlet adaptation mm. like it's a it's a movie that i'm sure you would have fun watching but it like i don't think it's a classic of the genre i think it's known for being the yeah. hamlet spaghetti western i just like spaghetti westerns um i should watch this uh 1978 film called uh, The Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> yeah. Um, that attracted critics' attention again after Quentin Tarantino used the same title as inspiration for his 2009 film. You, you know, okay, here's the thing about that, right? It, and this is my line on Tarantino always, but um, I have not seen this Inglorious Bastard, but when Django Unchained came out, I went back because my my love of spaghetti westerns goes back about as far as my love of film goes but um when Django Unchained hit a couple years later I went back and watched um the original like 66 Django yeah you know it's a good movie there you know it's no... a good movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so yeah like this is the thing I always say about Tarantino is that if nothing else, he gets you to go watch the better movies that he's ripping off. Yeah. And Django Unchained is maybe one of the Tarantinos that I like, even though it is also just kind of an excuse for him to get to say the N-word a bunch. Yeah. Vicariously. If I Oh, you mean a Quentin Tarantino film. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, in some Quentin Tarantino movies, he just writes it so that he gets to say the N-word a bunch. This is one where he's like, Oh, I can't get away with that anymore. I'll have other people say the N-word for me, yeah. and I'll feel so dirty. And <laughs> um, Yeah, I feel like the the big thing with Tarantino for me is... This, this is a realization that I had when there was that meme going around that was, like, one of the directors that, like, got you into film, and then, like, one of your favorite directors now, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um... Both you and M said Quentin Tarantino, and I was like, now you and M liking Tarantino makes more sense to me, because I wanted to watch, like, I watched Tarantino having watched, like, gangster films, mm-hmm. having watched, you know, black exploitation, having watched, like, when I saw Kill Bill, I had already seen, like, V-Cinema stuff. Right. Kill Bill was riffing on. Yeah. And so... None, like, for me, I didn't get any of the appeal of, like, like, I was just like, oh, he's just doing these things that I've already seen. Yeah. And I think if you haven't seen them, like, it's it's an introduction to that stuff. But the thing for me is that I just, like, I don't feel like his movies themselves hold up very well. And so mm-hmm. the, the main benefit to them is, like, 
getting people to watch the old stuff that he's like pulling from. Mm-hmm. Then there's a certain degree which I'm like, just like be a big film guy who like releases letterbox lists or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, like I really I'm kind of being an asshole here, but like, yeah, I also I do not generally care for most Tarantino movies anymore. I don't think I am exaggerating to say that my life can be split into before I watched Pulp Fiction and after I watched Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Watching Pulp Fiction is like a pivotal thing for me. Yeah. Like, we don't do this podcast if I didn't watch Pulp Fiction at that moment in my life that I did it, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, if you asked me, hey, do you want to... Like, watch Pulp Fiction tomorrow? I'd be like, no, no, I don't like that movie. Yeah. I'll watch Reservoir Dogs. I'll watch Jackie Brown. I do not want to watch fucking Pulp Fiction. That movie's too long. Here's the here's the other thing is I know a lot of people who like Kill Bill Volume 2 more than Kill Bill Volume 1. Mm-hmm. I like Kill Bill Volume 1 more, and it's just because um, I feel like not enough people have watched that and then gone and watched Yo-Yo Girl Cop, and that's what people need to be watching after they watch <laughs> Kill Bill Volume 1. Yo, it's Yo-Yo, Yo-Yo Girl, Cop. Girl Cop. Yo-Yo Girl Cop's a good movie. I've only seen parts of it. I um, It's not a good movie, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, so I have heard of that movie by reputation. Of It's not a good movie, but I love it. And so I yeah. went on YouTube and just was like, Yo-Yo Girl Cop, and watched a couple scenes of Yo-Yo Girl Cop. And I'm like, all right, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, like, a lot of the Sugeban Deka stuff is, mm-hmm. is good, but... Um, we should start the podcast i feel like yeah i need like my energy is not right and i need to like enter the podcast and like find it so bye everyone